You've heard the stories. A brutal murder in the Black Hills discovered today. You've witnessed the horror. Now, police have arrested 17-year-old Jeff Drove Rutter. him to evil. Look into the face of evil. Of Shadows, Lair Witch 2, rated R, starts Friday, October 27th. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, your horror movie podcast that is dedicated to covering every single horror movie franchise, one movie, and sometimes multiple episodes at a time. So I am your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we feeling? Dun, dun, dun. I am so ready for this. You've I'm got the gloves ready. on. You've got the mouth guard in. I'm feeling, for some reason, I'm feeling extra just like ornery tonight. I don't know why. When I dialed up earlier, you had like the theme from Rocky in the background. <laughs> and the sounds of you like hitting big slabs of meat. So. I want you, Balboa. I want yeah. you. Oh, my God. Hey, woman. Oh, I do the whole clubber laying. Hey, woman. Why don't you come down here? Tell me what a real man looks like. So. Oh, Mr. T. Right. My favorite Simpson joke of all time is like when Homer goes to the financial advisor and he's like all the mistakes he's made. And he's like, you know, I lost money in Rocky three. And they're like, wait a minute, you bet against Rocky? I bet on Mr. T. So favorite, favorite wow. Simpsons bit of all time. See, that's, um, how you know, that's how you know that we're so <laughs> excited to talk about the movie of the week because yeah. we, we're already going into like Simpsons and Rocky. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what we're going to do. We're switching gears. We're now a pop culture um, <laughs> Not pop culture podcast. No, I actually am excited to tonight. Yeah, tonight we are going to be talking about Blair Witch Two, The Book of Shadows, or The Book of Shit Shows, however you want to know. <laughs> Wait a minute, let me back up. So, as a mental health professional, as a counselor, one of the things we talk about is positive self-talk, positive thinking, cognitive restructuring to change the way we look at things. So, I'm very interested tonight to see if our guest. Um, the estimable, oh, you know what? I cannot even fucking say it. I am so slap happy. Um, the esteemed Jinx from Bloody yeah. Disgusting and the Scream Addicts podcast. He is here to school us and educate us on why Book of Shadows is better than the reputation suggests from some people. So, Jinx, how are we doing tonight? Oh, I'm I'm great. I, I don't feel like I've walked into... Uh an ambush at all uh it's just uh <laughs> I, I i do want to say i don't know who told you i was esteemed in any way so uh yeah definitely want to uh to counter that but uh no i don't know i'm excited i uh i didn't realize initially when i said i would uh do this episode that i would be the only person here to defend it um mm -hmm. you know i thought i would have a little bit of backup but you know maybe that uh maybe that tracks because uh i've been defending this movie for nearly 20 years now i mm -hmm. i found very little in the way of support along the way. So, uh, you know, this is just more of the same. I'm I'm ready to take my lumps for loving this movie. There are going to be no lumps. I hope there are going to be no lumps. So we try to, and, and our thing is like, look, we're going to be critical of the movie, but I think we're going to try to give it its just due and hopefully take no undue shots at it. I mean, it's not like it's something like a real piece of shit like Mandy. So, you oh, know. come on. Oh, you. Oh, oh. yeah. Worse. No, in all, in all seriousness, though, like one of my favorite things about doing this podcast has been 
to kind of dissect even films that I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, from the beginning, I said I don't really care for the Scream movies, but it was so much fun to hear people that actually liked them talk about why, you know, or Jason goes to hell. Sorry, Adam Marcus's wife. Uh, you know, we talked about <laughs> we talked about, you know, how I'm not crazy about it, but it was mm-hmm. so much fun listening to you guys talk about how you were. So mm-hmm. I'm 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 really excited about tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what new we can pick up overall um, from, you know, just from a conversation about like, a conversation among friends about the movie overall. So, you know, we are we'll definitely we not walking into friends. an ambush. Yes. Maybe the Book of Shadows was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I never get tired of that joke. It's so bad. So, Jinx, tell us a little bit. Like, what we like to know is, like, when we put out, like, this is the series we're going to cover. Like you said, you were the first one to say, like, I want Book of Shadows. Like, you were adamant, like, this is the one I'm going to cover. What was it about this movie What was your, that said, like, I want to come on and talk about this? Well, I guess I should say when I when I heard that you all were planning on covering the Blair Witch, you know, franchise, I uh, I really did want to be a part of the first episode. I adore the first movie. It's uh, I think it's brilliant. I really do. I think it's one of the best horror movies ever made. Um, I, I have vivid memories of watching it, you know, opening night at my local theater with a completely packed house. And, uh, you know, even back then, even before cell phones were, you know, uh, <laughs> that much of a thing, you know, you would still have uh, rowdy audiences, people who would talk back to the screen, especially in a movie like that in the small town that I uh, lived in. And yet there was something about the power of the movie that it just held everybody in its thrall, like um, 385 seat auditorium, completely packed and not a peep throughout the bulk of that film, except when people would jump or, you know, laugh at Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm always chasing that, that, that sort of a thrill is where every time I go to watch a, uh, a horror movie, I'm hoping that it will be at least in part as powerful as that showing of, uh, uh, Blair Witch was. And you know, I, 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 I'm just, I'm a huge fan of that movie, even two decades on. Um, so I wanted to be a part of that episode, but I was told that the episode was booked and I was really sad. So the next thing that I said was, okay, at least give me book of shadows. I know not that many people are going to be gunning to, uh, to rap about that movie and to talk about their love for it. Um, you know, I, and I guess if I'm the only guy here who is going to be sort of, uh, uh, defending the film, I'll go ahead and say this. I guess I I don't know. I'm going to eight mile my way to victory here by robbing you two of your insults by getting to them first. You ready? Mm-hmm. So let me start by saying this. Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2 is a terrible Blair Witch Project sequel. Terrible sequel. It destroys the first film's carefully crafted mythology. It uh it fights against the extended universe of spinoffs that were at the time. Uh, you know, even though Book of Shadows Time Book tried to rectify that, but never mind. Uh, you know, it failed to capture the first film's frights. It's not very scary at all. It's certainly nowhere near as scary as the first film. And, you know, then the script sometimes features dialogue that can cause the occasional eye roll or is just too plain on the nose when grappling with its themes, which are sometimes presented in a fairly ham-fisted way. This is a movie that certainly has its flaws, and yet I still find plenty about the film that I I, I truly love. Uh, there is enough there that keeps me coming back yearly. I uh, 
you know, the Blair Witch Project is a Halloween season viewing every year. Sometime in October, I'm going to pop that movie in and watch it. And equally, sometime in November, I'm going to pop in Book of Shadows and watch it too. Mm-hmm. Once a year, just to remind myself, you know, how much I enjoy it. And, uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. also to try and see why people dislike it. It's not that it's that hard to see why people dislike it. I understand. I get it. I'm I'm not here to try and convince either of you that this is a... Uh, a better movie than you think it is because I've been doing that for damn near two decades with everybody else. And I know that it just doesn't work. Uh, but I will, uh, I will at least, uh, I'll at least, you know, sing its praises on my end as best I can. So you said something interesting there. That's only tangentially related. I love this idea of seasonal viewings and, you said, like, this is a movie that I watch Halloween every season with the first movie. Every Halloween season, this is in the rotation. I, you know, just for shits and giggles, before we dive deep into the movie, I like would like to know from each of you guys what you consider appropriate seasonal Halloween viewing. For example, like, I like the Friday the 13th movies. I love the Elm Street movies. I don't watch those during, like, late September through October. No, I'm I'm the same exact way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So so what does a movie have – what kind of qualities do you think it needs to have in order to be – because we're getting into the spooky season um, right now. I think – I think that the opening of Halloween 4 perfectly sums up what kind of movie should be a Halloween Mm -hmm. season movie. You know what I mean? Like I love Halloween – like I love horror films that actually take place or invoke that kind of tone. You know, Halloween, Halloween four, uh, trick or treat, man. Like, God damn. If Carpenter hadn't named his film Halloween, trick or treat should have been named Halloween because it is that (laughs) there's, I mean, it just sums it up perfectly or even recently, more recently, uh, you know, some people might not like it. I thought it was charming, but candy corn, that movie, Mm -hmm. like it's obviously a first film, you know, it's amateurish at times, but I I enjoyed the hell out of it. And it gives you that feeling of a movie that you would want to watch during the fall season. Mm hmm. You know, I suppose my choices are probably going to be boring, but I mean, honestly, just the Halloween franchise and Trick or Treat, it's it's pretty much with those. I, you know, with mm-hmm. the exception of Resurrection, I have to watch the entire franchise every October. Uh, yeah, and just uh, – and I hold off on Trick or Treat until night of. I, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think it was a – gosh, probably four or five years ago when I realized I kept trying to watch uh, – you know, Halloween one and two, those were my go-tos for Halloween night. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at a certain point I sort of folded in trick or treat until I decided, you know what, this doesn't really need to be a triple feature. And, you know, if you put a gun to my head, it's going to be Carpenter's original and then trick or treat, which I think mm-hmm. is maybe out of the two, maybe my favorite seasonal, you know, movie. Sure. Uh, I think it better represents the holiday than, uh, than Carpenter's original, which I adore, which I love. Of course it's a masterpiece, but, uh, yeah, no trick or treat. That's, that's a dull answer. I will say, um, that I have gotten around to, uh, throwing on the guest pretty close to Halloween now too. Ooh, so that's, good. that's really good. Yeah. I like a movie that invokes the kind of evokes the season of fall to it. I want the feeling like I need to go put on a sweater while I'm watching this movie yes. and like sip on something warm at that point. Um, 
and something a bit doesn't necessarily have to be scary but just maybe have a sense of being like really playful to it so a lot of times like i'll go back to classic monsters like the universal monsters and do a double feature of like james wales frankenstein and bride of frankenstein and maybe follow that up with the invisible man and the wolfman movies that i think are fun and charming and to me like just remind me of like Halloween season growing up are, are my Perfect. go-to staples. So uh, another one. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, no I was I, just going to say that brought to mind that I. Uh, <laughs> I'll just throw these it. two titles out quickly. But Sleepy Hollow and Something Wicked This Way Comes are also two movies that uh, not necessarily Halloween night viewing mm-hmm. uh, material, but definitely throughout the month of October, I think they are. Uh, they kind of perfectly capture exactly what you were talking yeah. about, I think, to me. Another one that uh, popped in my head was uh, The Lady in White. Oh, wow. Oh, I mean, it just feels like that feeling when you're a kid and you had those, like, cheap Halloween costumes, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it, it makes me feel, or, like, it makes me feel like it's Halloween anytime I watch that movie. Mm-hmm. I would say a modern movie for me that fits that bill would be... Um, the Woman in Black, the first Woman yeah. in Black movie with Daniel Radcliffe yes. from Hammer Studios, like a classic ghost story that is spooky and fun and I think really well done, like a classic ghost story. That is the kind of thing I love to watch overall. Have you seen so, the uh, the television version from the 80s? You know, I want to say that on my old site, it was all on YouTube, and I think like, hey – here's like all the episodes on youtube and just link to it on all things horror at one point because they were up there from like the bbc i don't remember if i actually sat down and watched it but i know that it has an incredible reputation yeah it is very good if you like the uh you know so many people call out the 80s movies being so much you know superior to the uh, daniel radcliffe film Mm -hmm. and uh, which i think is arguable i really like both hell i even liked uh Mm -hmm. Oh, the Angel of Death, which came out not long after. I I, mm-hmm. I, haven't, I enjoyed all three films, but uh, so, if yeah. you have not seen the television version of that story, there is one incredible fright in it that none of the movies top, none of the following movies anyway. So it's worth watching for that alone. I'm gonna have to hunt down a legal copy of that and uh, give that a watch. Then I've also, and Jerry, you mentioned this when we interviewed Ben Rock, the WUNF. Um, Halloween special. Oh yeah, something else watch every single I, year. Yeah, I dude, I adore that movie so much. Like I, I just think that movie is just absolutely perfect. I, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's just, just so much fun. And as someone who grew up in the '80s and remembers like when TV got to be a little bit weird on the local stations, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it just reminds me of that so much. And it's just, I think that the way they if I remember correct, one of the ways they marketed that is they would go to conventions and just leave like bags of VHS copies yeah. on the mm-hmm. road for people to find. Um, and I showed it to my kids. Mm-hmm. I showed it to my kids and I, I didn't tell them that it was fake. And they were afterwards, they were like, oh, my God. <laughs> they thought I showed them like basically a snuff movie, you know? Yeah, which <laughs> – which, you know, for us is not really outside the realm of possibility. So. I'm like, and then CPS got involved. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> well, speaking of stuff movies, let's get back to the Blair Witch Project. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. No. No, go ahead. No, it's, it's all right. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. So, well, I mean, when here's the deal. I want to start by just one thing. You know, when, when you think of the Blair Witch Project, I don't know about you guys, but obviously you think of music by P.O.D. Nickelback <laughs> Project 86 and Marilyn Manson, right? Right. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, they might have been on Josh's second mixtape. It's possible. Right. Damn it. Well, Josh's mixtape had things like typo negative, things like that, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's get so it straight here. He had some good we're not, taste. We're not, you know. <laughs> so you're saying you don't like Manson? I, no, I do, but I mean, come on. You don't the like Blair Bo? Project. You don't like Godhead? No. No. But it's just like, I, I just, and you know, honestly, it's an easy joke. You, you know, Blair Witch Project, you have to throw in POD and Nickelback. <laughs> of course. But well, when is it not about. a good time for Nickelback? I mean, really, like, I mean, always. <laughs> you know, I never thought I would hear that sentence in my life. When is it or, never or not a good time for Nickelback? Yeah. I mean, I think what this world always. needs right now is more Nickelback, really. Yeah. Uh, All right. So let's go back to the fall of 1999. Artisan has this unexpected hit on their hands. I knew the movie would do well, but... $250 million worldwide by the fall of 1999. It seems like everybody has seen the Blair Witch Project, and the natural thing at that point is like we need to make more of them. There's a few problems, though. Number one, people walk out of the Blair Witch Project after it got big, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't seem to like the movie very much when they walk out of it. That was my they made a lot of money, but it made a lot of money, but at the same time, I mean, there was such a huge backlash, you know, it, it seemed like it, even like prior to Twitter and all that stuff, it seemed like the Blair Witch Project was something that people always talked down about, you know, it, and I, I think it might have been the filming style, but in a lot of ways, I think it was that gut reaction to something becoming popular, you know, mm-hmm. I, like, I, I was just talking about this with uh, 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 Justin Beam about something like it, it feels like if something gets to a certain like popularity, it seems like it's, it's just an easy target. For example, Nickel, Nickelback. Nickelback. Exactly. No, exactly. You know, I'll, I'll joke about Nickelback, or my wife wants to hang me every time I mention Buck Cherry. Mm-hmm. But it's like those are easy targets. You know what I mean? And I feel like the Blair Witch was so successful that once the bat, once the hype, and once the buzz wore off. It was such an easy target for people just to, like, hate. I wonder how much part of that, too, was the fact that some people felt like, you know, they had had one pulled over on them. You know, that they had been tricked. That, Most uh, people did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I and did. I, I wonder if, movie. you know, I wonder how many people walked out loving the fact that they saw something different. And then, you know, they turned on it after they realized that they had been duped a bit. Yeah. I well, think that is it. such a good point. I think that's. And I think people realized, felt like the wool had been pulled over their eyes. Like, wait a minute, I thought this was real. What do you mean it's not real? And then they felt really stupid at that point. What Um, does that say to people, though, that they were pissed that they weren't watching a snuff movie? (laughs) (laughs) Late 90s were a wild fucking time, man. Um, I miss them. You know, and I can relate a a personal story here. Um, Two years ago... I was driving out to Telluride Horror with uh, Brad McCarg, who was on our uh, Jason Takes Manhattan episode, uh, and a couple other people. And, you know, we all have our, like, iPhones. We're, like, each taking turns playing different things, you know, on the six-hour drive from Denver to Telluride. So I put on a couple episodes of the Black Tapes podcast. I don't know if you guys have listened to that at all. No, no, no. It's the first season, and it's incredible. 
Um, and it's kind of diminishing ter- returns after that. But it's basically Serial meets The Exorcist, or Serial meets The X-Files might be a better way to put it. It's about this... Um, Subscribing? Investigate. I would cannot recommend the first season enough. Um, but it came out like in the wake of shows like Serial pushing the boundaries of what podcasts could do in terms of being informative but also very entertaining and it's very much like they play it straight like they don't play it like hey this is a work of fiction so you think you're listening to reality there's just enough there to make you think what you're listening to is real and the first couple episodes like everyone in the car is like espousing theories and maybe it's this maybe it's this i wonder what that i've never heard of this and after like an hour i'm like you guys know this is fiction right And from that point on, like the next episode, everything got picked apart in terms of how it was put together. That's dumb. That's stupid. Why would they do that? And Mm -hmm. it was like, you know, they fell angry because like they had been tricked. So I think that, Jinx, to your point, there's something to be said for that. That that's when people realize they didn't just come out of seeing three people get murdered. um, They felt like there was something like they were tricked and they didn't like that feeling. You know, like like we said in the, the previous episode, I mean, that movie, it scared the living hell out of me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of knew that going into it, it, that it was fictional. You know, I knew it wasn't real. But I mean, there was still, you know, my dad picked me up from wherever I was and told me that he it was real. You know, so even reading that it wasn't, there was still this little nugget of like, you know, you know what I mean? Like if you find something as a kid. You know, your parents tell you something's not real or something like that. But in the back of your head, you still think that that boogeyman is in the closet. You know what I mean? Like, and I think going into Blair Witch, I was I still had that little fear inside of me thinking that I was seeing something dangerous, something, Mm -hmm. you know, something really dangerous. So I can understand people being upset by that. But at the same time, like it's it's almost like the placebo effect, you know, like you, you tell someone something, they start believing it. And it, it gives them an, like a, a physical reaction, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's weird. Agree. And I will say, you know, uh, for my part, watching that original movie, I think, you know, I think I'd read about it in Fango by that point. I had, uh, yeah, you know, I'd watched Curse of the Blair Witch and, you know, you can watch something like that and be tricked just enough into thinking that possibly maybe mm-hmm. it's real, but also, in many ways, you could tell it's like, no, this is a yeah, of course, this is this is not real. This is a gag, mm-hmm. but it's just a very well made gag. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I knew it was fake. And yet when I bought a ticket and sat down, I was all too willing just for that hour and a half to mm-hmm. believe that it was completely real. And I walked out shaking and scared and thrilled. And uh, and then I went back home. Well, that which is, was situated I mean, right next to a forest. Right. And I could yeah. hear the sounds of the forest all night long and it fucking terrified me. And um, I miss that. I miss that feeling. I miss walking out of a theater and feeling mm-hmm. like that. It doesn't happen that often anymore. I think marketing plays a big, big hand in that. I mean, you sit in a theater and, you know, the Evil Dead remake, you're promised on the posters that it's the scariest movie ever made, <laughs> you know, or Paranormal Activity when it came out, the scariest movie of all time, you know, like you sit down. You know, and you know that it's probably just hype, but you sit down having heard that or read that, that it's like, I think it's an inevitable letdown, no matter like if it's really good or it's not. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. It's like if you tell someone, don't think about the color red, all they're going to do from that point on is think about the color red. If you challenge an audience and say, this is the scariest thing you're ever going to see, this is the funniest movie you're ever going to see, or this is the scariest movie since The Exorcist, you're setting yourself up for failure in one way or another. Because those are just too lofty. It's like, let something be, instead of being the next Exorcist, let it be the first of what it is. And enjoy it for what it is. Now, there's always this need to compare things or label things, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that hurts films more than it, mm-hmm. you know, it helps them. Okay. So this is a long way around of saying Artisan has a pretty unique problem on its hand. On one hand, they have a movie that was a massive hit, and they know there's an audience, and Artisan is you know, in the habit of wanting to make more money. So the natural thing is they're going to want to do a sequel. Um, Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Myrick by this time – they wanted to go make romantic comedies. They really didn't want to make another horror movie. And they also were pretty aware of like what was being said about the Blair Witch Project and how the hype bubble had kind of crashed. And they were saying, like, look, we're willing to revisit this. We have all these ideas, obviously, with our mythology that we can go back and do. Like, we would love to do a movie on just Rust, uh, Rust and Parr. We would love to go back and and revisit, like, Ellie Kedward. And they had an idea for a movie very similar to what we saw, you know, almost 15 years later with uh, Robert Eggerts and The Witch. Um, but they're like, let's let this thing breathe a little bit. Like, we just released this movie. We've been working on it for, like, over three years. Like, let's let this thing simmer down and then go back when people want more of it. And Artisan said, nope, you have to have this thing out by October of 2000, which is insane. Yeah. Um, you had a one-year turnaround on something that took three years to create. Yeah, it's it's – like I think it's a classic example of just something being rushed so much that you know artisan artisan wanted to have something out there. They didn't want they didn't realize that by rushing that, I mean it, I think it set it set the film up and set Berlinger up just for failure. Mm-hmm. You know you, you have to you have to let those things breathe. You have to work on development. I mean what movie that was sped up that quickly like ended up being good? I can't think of a single one. That was my next question. Like, Jinx, can you think of a time when a movie or any artistic project was given a hard, fast deadline with nothing else behind it, and it was a rush job, that it ended up being, like, successful? Uh, If we want to stick with Lionsgate, would you consider the Saw sequels? Sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed the hell out of Saw 2. I uh, arguably, I think it's a better film than Saw. And uh, I love Saw 3. After that, it's diminishing returns. But um, but yeah, no, those first three, I mean, they just, yeah. what was it, for seven years, six years? Yeah, uh, they, they were hitting uh, every Halloween. That's kind of amazing. And then uh, uh, Paranormal Activity tried it for, what, its first three mm-hmm. installments? And then after that, it was a bit staggered. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, no, uh, with, uh, you know, <laughs> some of those were very good and some weren't but uh well i mean some people think vhs2 is better than the first film and that was kind of rushed like yeah uh-huh. oh it is it is god if for no other reason then uh oh for safe haven my god oh right yeah <laughs> so do you think then that lionsgate or, or rather artisan um 
do you think that they are trying to tackle this problem by holding on to that release date, realizing that they're uh, up against the wall? And uh, <laughs> the best solution that somebody can come up with is, hey, the first movie was essentially a documentary. Why don't we just get a documentary filmmaker to give us a sequel? See, that's where my biggest – oh, man. That is where my biggest disappointment comes. And I don't mean like my expectations were more important than the film. Like, I, I really think the expectations are dangerous. But you get someone who has made some of the best documentaries of all time. And that's great. But at the same time, like, he had nothing but, like, kind of hatred for the first film. And that's always just rubbed me the wrong way. Like, why get someone that didn't appreciate the first film that worked to get to make something kind of continuing that? I think that's why, you know, when I said at the very beginning that I think the Blair Witch 2 is a terrible sequel, I, I do. I think it's a terrible mm -hmm. sequel in so many ways. Viewing it as a standalone film or even kind of a great extension of Berlinger's documentary work, I I think it works on that level. I, I remember sitting down and watching Blair Witch 2 for the first time. I was working in a movie theater, uh, the same theater that I watched, uh, you know, Blair Witch 1 the previous year. But uh you know, I, I had uh, I had made friends with enough managers there that I could slip in from time to time and do the uh, after hours screenings of movies before they were released mm -hmm. to the public. You know, the film prints had to be built up, put on a platter mm -hmm. and then run to make sure that all of the reels were put on in the correct order. There were no miss splices, anything like that. And if it was a movie that I was dying to see. I would be like, look, can you please, please let me watch this? And of course, Blair Witch 2 is going to be one of those. And uh, I was I was watching with two managers who were pals. And uh, I remember maybe 15, 20 minutes in, I just had this sinking feeling that, oh, God, this isn't even remotely what I want out of a Blair Witch sequel. Mm -hmm. This is this is not what I want. Why? Why are they doing this? You know, and and at a certain point, I uh, I just kind of relaxed and I was like, okay, whatever this is, let's see how it goes. And then at a certain point I realized that, you know, look, especially looking at paradise lost and paradise lost Two, which had just come out right before this. Um, you know, it really did feel like Berlinger was wrestling with some of his concerns as a documentary filmmaker only, you know, in this narrative form. And by the end of the movie, I was walking out grinning ear to ear, sort of bouncing out of the theater. And the two guys that I watched it with absolutely hated it. And that has pretty much been my experience ever since. Uh, <laughs> I still dig the movie. Do you think and that uh, – so uh, Sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, do you think that it has – it suffers the same kind of thing that Halloween – three does that if it yes. was called something else then it people would have uh appreciated it more i think if you removed or simply even renamed the blair witch mythology if you called it something else but it was obviously a commentary on the blair witch movie and phenomena and if it had come out a year after that first film um, I, I think people would be so much more forgiving. I think if you divorced it from the franchise that it is taking, <laughs> that is taking pot shots at, even though it belongs to the same fucking franchise. Um, I think that see, absolutely yeah, that, people see, wouldn't that's, appreciate that's it more. Always, that's what's always bothered me about it is that there are definite pot shots being taken at the first film. I mean, it, it seems to like viciously mock uh, the first movie at times. And I, I think that that's, that's where it lost me the first time I, I've, I watched it. It's just like, 
I feel really weird watching this because this movie hates the movie it's a sequel to. Yeah, and and I get that, and I don't know what it says about me being a huge fan of the first film that I can also be a fan of this movie too. Mm-hmm. Um, Not totally. And yet I am. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Halloween three. I, uh, you know, it, it, it's very much like maybe that's part of the reason that I love the movie is that you know right out of the gate with the first sequel we wind up with a film that is. Uh, you know, taking a pretty big swing and doing its own thing and not simply rehashing the previous movie, which it would have been so easy to do. It would have been so easy to throw another group of actors out in the woods, follow them with the shaky cam and release it into theaters. And you know what? It wouldn't have made even uh, half of what the first film did, but it would have made a profit mm-hmm. and they could have run it into the ground over the course of a few sequels. But instead, we get a very smart documentary filmmaker who is basically, yeah, grinding an axe, but uh, when it comes to his thoughts on the previous movie and the phenomenon. And I think, you know, yeah, it is kind of like Halloween 3. It stands apart in that way. It's a Nightmare on Elm Street 2, in a way, in how it stands right. apart from the original movie. You know, I, I can watch Nightmare 2 and think, you know what? This movie doesn't feel like it really respects the previous movie much at all. And yet, on its own, it's it's interesting you know i don't know that i love nightmare 2 but still um you know halloween 3 i think is the same way they tried doing something quite different from what had come before we didn't need to see michael myers again i still don't think yeah we need to see any more michael myers why you know halloween 3 i think was pissed on for a good decade and a half before people started to come around to it why people still treat halloween 3 as some sort of uh underloved black sheep is kind of beyond me at this point. People have been praising that movie for the last 20 years, but uh, you know, I keep waiting as a fan of Blair Witch two for people to come around on it. And at this point, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I've always been obsessed with uh, alternate cuts. You know, I, I, I was never a fan of Halloween six, but I was really excited to see the producers cut to see if maybe there was something in the original intention original vision that you know what it would have made me appreciate it and i've always wanted to see berlinger's cut of the second blair witch i mean everything from wanting the film to open with frank sinatra's witchcraft you know before the studio made him do disposable teens by marilyn manson like it just seems like he had a completely different vision and though i you know i am pretty sure that i probably wouldn't i still wouldn't dig it that much I would like to see what it could have been. Yeah, I, you know, I'm with you. I always wanted to see Berlinger's cut of the movie too, much as I want to see any director's original vision for any movie, you know, certainly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe especially this one, because I always had the feeling that, you know, well, maybe his version is better than what we have. And if people could see it, then maybe everybody would come around on this movie. And then I wouldn't feel so terribly alone. Uh, But that said, it was actually on this last uh, last minute revisit of the movie for this conversation that I considered that I'm not sure his director's cut would top what we already have. Now, hear me out. He talks about, sure, wanting to replace the Marilyn Manson song that opens the film with uh, Frank Sinatra's Witchcraft. Now, I like that song. It's a cool song, sure. But, you know, Disposable Teens gives that film sort of an energy and a darkness right off the bat. Whereas Witchcraft, I think, in that opening sequence, would almost start us out on kind of a note of irony, which might be fine. I don't know. I'd like to see it. But, you know, I kind of like what's there already. And I, I I, don't know. I don't know if that would be the strongest foot to lead off on. Same thing with, uh, you know, listening to his commentary, of course. He takes loads of pot shots at the movie for, you know, the many changes that were imposed. And... 
you know, he talks about not wanting the gore flashes sort of strewn throughout the movie. And I get that. I mean, it happens too often. They're kind of cheaply done. Uh, they do provide a couple of jolts and, you know, keep the atmosphere a bit dark and oppressive. You know, we, we know that everything we're witnessing is going somewhere really, really horrible. We just don't know when and where, but Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I, I I don't know that removing all of those would strengthen the movie. Kind of to, to, touch on what you said that you know you don't know if it would strengthen the movie you know uh berlinger's always been outspoken with with saying that even his original intention was to ultimately be focused on that they were mentally unstable people and that it was a human enemy not a supernatural one and that's another element that just i think makes the film suffer so much because like the blair witch was real in the first film i mean you know it's been said by the creators you know there's all these theories but yeah it is a supernatural film and so to make a sequel of that where i mean you know what i mean like yeah it's a movie within a movie but at the same time taking even like a supernatural element out of it 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 seems it seems like the movie itself doesn't even know what it wants to be and it, it seems like any charm of the first film is gone and yeah i do agree with you you know if you take the blair witch part out of it you know it might be entertaining but the point the the fact is it is a blair witch film so i mean as a viewer should we be expected to separate it from the first film when it is the second film you know what i mean there's a nihilism and a sense of detached irony that runs throughout book of shadows that makes it really hard for me to stomach. And I, Jinx, I understand what you're saying where you're like, well, this Marilyn Manson song gives it like a jolt of energy. I hear that Marilyn Manson song and all I think is like someone in the marketing department doing is like the Steve Buscemi, hello, fellow kids, (laughs) meme come to life. And you know Um, what? That's probably 100% exactly what that decision was. I'm certain of it. I would actually put money on you being entirely right on that, but it still works for me. You know, I, uh, and I don't know, you know, I can't even say why. I don't know why it works so damn well when uh, Pose Haunted comes over the, uh, the end credits. Uh, you know, I, uh, Jerry, I know you're not a fan of the soundtrack. Um, <laughs> I like and Project I don't... 86. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, maybe witchcraft would work better. You know, maybe it would be better without the, uh, the gore bits. And, you know, he even talked about in his commentary, like presenting the movie entirely chronologically so that we don't get those, um, kind of flash forwards of yeah. Jeff and yeah. Steven and Kim at the station. But, you know, I, Again, I think that makes the film work so much better, setting us up to know that something horrible has happened, we don't know what, and that our leads are being blamed for it. It gives the movie kind of a drive that I don't think it would have otherwise. You know, I, I Now, I'd be more than happy to be proven wrong on this. I want to see Berlinger's cut. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, I would, I, would, I would be first in line to buy that Blu-ray. I, you know, I'd love for him to get the chance to present his original vision, but I'm also really happy with what we have. So mm-hmm. part of what Berlinger says early on is like when we talked about him not being a fan of the first movie and somewhat being hostile to the movie, Berlinger says he felt it was very irresponsible 
for the Blair Witch Project to be presented as it was, to be presented as a documentary, to be presented as actual footage of actual events, as as he calls himself as someone that traffics in reality. And he's very clear, so I'm not saying reality TV, I'm talking about act, documenting the actual human experience. He felt that for entertainment to try to blur that line, for a work of fiction to try to blur that line, starts heading into dangerous territory. And I'll say this about Berlinger, in some ways he's very prescient. He says in 99 or 2000 that once you start presenting fiction as reality, we're already electing politicians on sound bites, who can sound the best in a 22 second news clip, rather than who can present the best ideas for how to move forward as a country or as a community. So mm-hmm. if we're now it becomes too easy to fool people, to fake people out. He says that some poll says that about 40% of the people that leave the Blair Witch Project believe that those are actual events that happened. And we discussed that a little bit earlier in our show. And as a documentary as a documentarian, that is something he finds very scary. And he finds very yeah. unsettling. I okay. say this is just okay. taking a medium and taking storytelling and presenting it as in a new way and presenting fiction in a new way and making it take advantage of these new tools that are available to you. Very similar to what Bram Stoker does in his novel of Dracula, which is presented as diary entries, news journals, letters back home to people. You know, you can in some ways call the novel of Dracula a found footage novel. But so, I don't think was he really so upset with the film itself or yes. how it was marketed. Yes, both. Hmm. He okay. thought it was uh, unless I'm misreading. His idea was not just that it was marketed as reality, but this idea that you're presenting this footage as reality is dangerous and entertainment. It's itself. Now the other thing he says is he felt insulted as a documentary filmmaker. And I'm going to just bring up really quick. This is a interview with Joe Berlinger from cut print film. Um, an interview he did in 2016 after the Blair witch had come out and kind of like disappeared off the radar very quickly. Um, so this is from him. What I objected to at the time was that somehow degraded video quality that is shaky and poorly shot has become equated with reality and what the documentary and not is. It's wallowing in the worst cliches of bad documentary making somehow equals reality. As a maker of well-crafted, well-shot documentary films, I don't want to pursue that path when they ask me to do a sequel. Okay, but he, mm-hmm. just let me let me interject with that. And I have my he's, own thoughts too, so please. He's he's offended. He's offended that they're making a mockery out of great uh, documentary filmmaking, yet he makes a mockery of great narrative filmmaking with a Book of Shadows. He was hey, he was picking up the stone and he was throwing it right back. I can't mm-hmm. knock him entirely for that. Mm-hmm. So I I think what it is is like. There's a fundamental misunderstanding on Berlinger's part of what the Blair Witch Project actually was, Mm -hmm. because it's not the actual documentary of the Blair Witch Project takes up about less than 20 minutes, somewhere around like maybe 12 minutes of the movie, because it's around minute 22 or 23 that Josh, Heather and Mike go into the woods and disappear. 
That's when they get lost. It's the last thing they really shoot for the documentary is the footage of the two fishermen um, kind of like sparring back and forth on whether or not the legend of the Blair, which is true. And even before that, not everything they film is actually part of a documentary. It's them going food shopping in a supermarket and it's them you know, getting drunk in the hotel room. Those aren't things that were going to be in the actual documentary. There are moments in the document in the Blair Witch Project where you see what Heather intended to be part of the documentary. You know, when she does the reading in front of Calf- Coffin Rock, when she's mm-hmm. at the cemetery, that is what, if they had completed their actual film, that's what the documentary would have looked like. And it looks and it sounds like a real documentary. Yeah, Josh, Mike, and Heather getting lost in the woods is not a documentary. It is three scared kids coping with what's going on the only way they know how. No, that's that, you know, it's what she says in that first film, you know, it's all I have left basically, you know, I, them being shaky with it. That's that is out of the fear. You know, that is out of just wanting to film stuff, you know, mostly for reference or in case something does happen to them. Mm-hmm. They know they're not getting out, like we said in the last episode. So she's filming it for her loved ones, basically, mm-hmm. which is why she apologizes at the end. You know, uh, if if she would have been able to complete the documentary, it would have been just as good as, you know, well shot and just as thorough as Berlinger's Paradise Lost would have been, mm-hmm. you know? I just remember, so far as Berlinger's, stands i get it you know i understand i i remember having this uh, professor in college i uh i took this uh documentary film class once and i can't tell you how often he drilled it into our heads the importance of uh oh god what was the term uh like kino pravda you know like uh the truth in film uh you know the idea that even when you're cutting even when you're editing footage uh, even without commentary you know there is a lie inherent in that you know and you sort of have to wrestle with that and stay as close to the truth as possible I get somebody who deals with sort of the heavy subject matter that Berlinger does, how he would feel, you know, maybe I don't understand him being entirely offended at uh, a horror movie using found footage as, you know, uh, the the way in which to tell its story. I mean, hell, what? The fucking Cannibal Holocaust was, what, 20, 25 years old by that point? Mm-hmm. Um you know, but I do understand his concerns at the movie being pushed as something that's real. Because you know what? I Ultimately, it's harmless, right? It's just a horror movie. It's just a bit of fun. It's entertainment. You go, you have a laugh or a jump or, you know, a scream. And then you walk out and then you find out that it's not real. And maybe you're a little bummed. But you, and you go on about your life. But then again, you know, when <laughs> in the age before, um, you know, Google and uh twitter social media of any sort you know the the internet was still in its infancy it felt like you know for the message to reach the masses that this thing is real and to get them to turn out in droves which certainly i mean i think the box office bears that out that you know i for them to walk away and eventually find out that santa isn't fucking real Mm -hmm. you know i i wonder what that does to somebody on a very small small level like there there is a chip taken out of them one of many to come down the road where people you know maybe they don't trust their eyes anymore maybe they don't trust what they're told in the way that they once did i i do wonder about the danger of that and you know and maybe that's silly again to hold again a fun horror movie to task for something like that but at least i understand why 
<coughs> excuse me, why he would be, you know, concerned at that and why he would want to make a movie to examine that and sort of look at it and yeah, criticize it. And I think that's, you know, how many horror movies can you, you know, which Friday the 13th sequel, uh, really took a hard look at what had come before, you know, Jerry, which, do your thing, do it, which, Jerry. which, which, which well, uh, do your life, do it. You know, honestly though, with that being said, I, I, I think the final chapter does because, you know, if you take Jason out of the, yes. I can't do it with a straight face. If you take Jason, out of that movie you still have a wonderful character driven movie you know I, I feel like the final chapter did exactly what you're saying okay. like it's but, a, I, but yeah no so I, I I guess that's why I appreciate Book of Shadows is because it is bold in that way you know a filmmaker came in and you know in the course of a year crafted a movie that you know wrestled with something that obviously was a concern of its maker and uh, I, I I don't know how he slipped as much as he did by artisan. I don't know how everything made it to the screen. I don't know how it wasn't hacked up even more than, you know, it, it was. I don't know if it was hacked up, but I mean, obviously it was altered. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I, I find that fascinating um, mm -hmm. that the movie exists in such a way. You know, I... Um, uh, of course, you know, <laughs> maybe the hell of it is, is that he was a making he was making a movie that was meant to stand outside of the continuity of the first movie. We're meant to watch that. And and I still kind of view it that way, if I'm being honest. I mean, if we're talking about what is canon in Blair Witch, I and this is no knock on Blair Witch, too, but I kind of count, um, you know, the original film. And even though I'm not even a huge fan of it, I, I include, uh, you know, Wingard's Blair Witch. You know, those yeah. are the two movies in the Blair Witch franchise. Book of Shadows stands outside of that to me. And yeah. it was meant to entirely. You know, it was meant mm -hmm. to be a part of, you know, uh, for lack of a better term at the moment, uh, the real world. And then, you know, Artisan did their damnedest to sort of uh, rope in the movie back into canon, you know, and back into the continuity of the original movie. And with the presentation that they had done with you know, Blair Witch and Curse of the Blair Witch and all of the, um, you know, those fun spinoff novels and the mm -hmm. Blair Witch dossier and uh, the confession of Rustin Parr, you know, even long beyond the point that we, you know, the viewers and fans realized that, you know, Blair Witch wasn't real. Uh, mm -hmm. They were still pushing it as, you know, all of this happened. All of this is happening. This is completely real. And then Berlinger gave them a movie that's like, you know, uh, it wasn't real we're examining the phenomenon and this is what comes from that. And, you know, we're going to examine the hysteria that came about from the result of uh, people believing that this was real. And I, I kind of wish that he had been left alone on that front, but, uh, you know, they, they made him include that opening that, you know, calls the movie essentially what a uh, dramatized reenactment yes. of real events, yeah, which I, I know that's the like fucking that counter. Yeah to what his intent with the movie was. And then they released, you know, uh, the guy who wrote the Blair Witch dossier, which was fucking fantastic. You know, um, he wrote a, a book of shadows spinoff, uh, that, you know, essentially, uh, says, Hey, that movie that you're about to watch in theaters, it was all real. You know, now those are actors playing parts, but here's yeah. what actually happened. Yeah. You can read the case file of the black Hills murders or whatever the fuck they call them, you know? And I, I gotta admit, I, I didn't read the book of shadows spinoff book until just before, um, the Adam Wingard sequel hit a few years back, you know, that, uh, 
that third film sort of kickstarted a franchise revisit for me that saw me not only rewatching the first two movies, but, you know, I, I revisited those spinoff novels. Uh, does anyone remember Cade Merrill, Heather Donahue's cousin? Uh, you know, the, the secret confession of Russ and Parr, the Blair Witch dossier, the yes. comps, the spinoff docs, you know, like, uh, yep. You know, not only Curse of the Blair Witch, stuff, but yeah, yeah Burkittsville 7 and Shadow of the Blair Witch. I fucking loved all that stuff. Yeah. I, I honestly think the Shadow of the Bear, Blair Witch is a better sequel to the yeah. Blair Witch Project than Book of Shadows. It's a better sequel in the way exactly. that Book of Shadows is not a good sequel. You know, I but I'd gone through most of that stuff before just being a fan. Uh, I never got around to the video games, but um, I had never read the Book of Shadows spinoff until Wingard's film was about to hit. And, you know, much like. Shadow of Blair Witch, it does a pretty good job of trying to pull Book of Shadows back into the world of the first movie, which again runs counter to what Berlinger was trying to do. And there are, yeah, I mean, it, he, you know, what's his name? D.A. Stern. I think he did a, a decent enough job trying at that point to keep it all in continuity. But I mean, there are some hurdles that just can't be cleared. Like, I mean, if you're to buy that the feature film is a dramatized retelling of real events, then <laughs> I mean, are we meant to believe that the filmmakers then sought out actors to play quote unquote real people who just so happen to have nearly the same damned names as the people they're playing? Exactly. I mean, you, you found that Jeffrey Donovan to play Jeffrey Patterson. Fine. I mean, but you also found an Erica Learson to play an Erica Gearson, uh, uh, <laughs> Tristan Schuyler to play Tristan Ryler. Uh, the worst one. Uh, oh God. Uh, Stephen Ryan. No. Um, Oh God. Uh, Stephen Barker Turner plays Stephen Ryan Parker. I mean, come the fuck on. Book of Shadows like really killed the franchise for a decade or any yeah. idea because it kind of did. I mean, at the end of the day, really, no, it, it did. It, it did. did. You know, did. he was so nice about all of it. He though. was. He really like, was. You could and you could tell. Like I, I asked that question of you know, is there ever kind of a letdown? You know, seeing your baby being kind of handled by other people, and yeah. there was a look on his face because he was doing video. There was a look on his face where you, you could tell he's like, "Yep, yeah, <laughs> yeah." You can you know, definitely... it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, too, because I know we had touched on this a bit during our last conversation. But and of course, I was scrolling through loads of stuff at the time. I was just kind of like brushing up. And uh, I think it might have even been something mentioned on the commentary. But Berlinger, again, it it doesn't sound to me anyway, like he hated the first film. I think like his the main rub for him was well, how he it was marketed it. No, really? he because he it. talked about how effective it was. He as... years later said like nice things about it, but in the yeah. moment he was offended that, and I've seen this in a couple different places. He was offended that people thought shaky cam footage was what a documentary is, like people swinging the camera around wildly. Yeah, was what no, a documentary no, no, is. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, he did. But I mean, there was something that I caught like this piece where he talked about basically the uh, sort of the horror of the piece and how effective it was and the mm -hmm. characters that it was, you know, it, it mainly rested on them. It might have, he might have been, been, been eh, I can't fucking speak right now. He might have even been talking about that when he was talking about crafting his own characters for mm -hmm. uh, for Book of Shadows. But it, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but it didn't sound like he outright hated 
the film think, has a tail. You know, I think in time he he kind of lessened his vitriol towards it. Right. And I he think seems it was to, like he seems himself to hate uh, Book of Shadows. I mean, I remember. Uh, God, this has been ages That's ago. Weird, but there was I do a, too. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was a horror hound uh, convention. I think it was the same one that they premiered the uh, Cabal Cut of Nightbreed at ages ago. Uh, but Clive Barker was actually there, and I didn't realize it, but fucking Berlinger was there at the time too. And it was later saying, revealed Clive that, Barker talked shit about Book of Shadows. <laughs> he might have. Uh, but they did an interview in the magazine that came out like a couple of months later. And apparently the reason he was there, he was filming footage for a Clive Barker documentary that, I mean, has yet to materialize. But he said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, barely quoting, but he said something along the lines of he felt like he owed it to horror fans to give them something great like a documentary on Clive Barker after having uh, inflicted Book of Shadows upon them. So Yeah, but he also inflicted the Ted Bundy movie. So when are we going to get another apology? Yeah. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> I'll just be in a yeah. it's, um, it's one of those things where when you go back and look, and you, you have to, you know what I mean? You have to go back and look and, like, know, like, I mean, just scoreboard. All you have to do is look at the scoreboard. 50000 to make, $250 million return, $15 million to make, $45 million, yep. which is not in and of itself isn't is good i mean like if like book of shadows came out today as a standalone movie and we haven't even really recorded yet i think we're gonna this is gonna be edited in in a very weird way because i have a head cold here (laughs) and a little bit loopy if like book of shadows to your you know like you said this when we were recording the first time like if it just came out and was its own little thing we would look at $15 million versus a $45 million investment and say, when are, we, when are we getting another one? Um, but I think like it's like being the biggest kid at the kid's table at Thanksgiving. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like nobody wants to be that. It's just, it's just eh, I don't know. That analogy does not work. So I'm gonna blame. I liked it though. I liked I'm gonna it. blame the cold medicine. Yeah, I'm gonna blame the cold medicine. But I do think too. I remember uh, working at the movie theater at the time when the movie came out. I know I've mentioned this before, but you know, I opening week in the Blair Witch, it was all word of mouth that had come mm-hmm. from the rollout in smaller cities, and of course, Curse of the Blair Witch, and of course that. That's sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, the rumors that it was all real, right? And so opening night, massive auditorium, completely packed. And then one year later, you know, opening night. Now, the movie hasn't been judged at this point. Nobody can say that it's a terrible movie outright, you know, before the initial viewing, before the initial screening mm-hmm. of the movie. And as I recall, I don't think it screened for critics, or maybe it did, but in any case... You know, um, I, I was there opening night working and I was expecting us to get stomped into the ground because of how busy the first film had been. And um, maybe 20 people, maybe 30 yeah. mm-hmm. in the evening showings. So I think, you know, I I don't know if the movie was ever going to do that well, because right. I think so many people felt burned by the first one. I don't know if it's financial failures uh, can all be pinned against the, the, the movie itself. Um, certainly great word of mouth would have helped it have legs and it did right. not have that at all. So it so, did have Dracula on the soundtrack though. That's not nice. <laughs> and Nickelback. Um, <laughs> it can, I, I think, so it's a really, 
I think it's a. This is going to be like Jason Betting. goes to hell all over again. This is um, Jason feels like he's going to hell right now. This Ranger's um, wife is going to hate me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is you know, I think that's a fair point, and I think when we interviewed Eduardo, one of the things he he regrets is you know not taking advantage of like really doing another movie when they could have. But what turned him the the final straw for him was when. Artisan said, okay, it's December. We need a movie by October. And there's no script. Yeah, no script, no cast, no story. He did tell us that, you know, even though they were kind of against the idea of doing it so soon, that they did kind of humor the idea of making the sequel, of doing the kind of, you know, prequel thing that we've all read about, you know, the period piece. And that, yeah, I mean, like what Mike's saying right now, I mean, they said in December that they had to be done and completed and ready to be released by October. And I can't see how anyone could do that knowing that they're about to set themselves up for failure. And I think like Eduardo and and Myrick were very, or Sanchez and Myrick were both after the film came out and they were aware of the backlash said, if we just give this a year to breathe, if we come back in like two years, totally reasonable amount of time. Um, you're going to have like more warm and fuzzy memories as opposed to like a lot of, I remember like I recommended to every single person I knew horror fan or not, like go see this movie, go see the Blair Witch Project. And it's like the best thing I've seen in theaters ever. And I remember people coming back to me and being like, you're out of your fucking mind. Like this movie's awful. Like it's not scary. I wasn't scared. You know, and I remember like, Man, I don't get that, but I don't get it either. Like, I, Although, I seriously don't understand it. Although, I, I guess, like, thing. if you're not, it was so different from what people were used to. And if you, sure. you know, if you're like an average horror <laughs> fan, and nothing wrong with being an average horror fan, this isn't gatekeeping. But if you're someone that, like, at that time really loved like the Scream movies, and I know what you did last summer, you know, in Halloween H2O, which is totally fine. Like, love those movies and do your thing. But if that's what you expected out of a horror movie, like, this wasn't that. And I think when people went to see The Blair Witch Project and then the same summer went to see The Sixth Sense, which is a fantastic popcorn movie and gives audiences what it wants, um, when you compare the two side by side, like, the average person going to the movie is probably going to gravitate more towards the latter. You know, that was a good fall, too. Um, damn it. I, uh, you know, I'm the, I mean, I'm I'm the horror nerd who loves Scream, and I know what you did last summer, and, you know, The Sixth Sense, and uh, mm-hmm. a Blair Witch, but that fall, yeah, we had, I mean, going into it. Things. You yeah. can love all those things. There's room in the boat for everything. See, but we had the Blair can. Witch Project, we had The Sixth you can Sense, love and we had all fucking Star of Echoes, too. Here's the thing, yeah. like, you can love all those things, but as horror fans, let's be realistic, how many people realize that you don't have to stick to one kind of thing mm-hmm. you know like i think people like us appreciate all subgenres but there are people that's like there are like the kind of snobby fans too that's mm-hmm. like sure. no i won't be caught dead watching this stuff but they oh. want to watch they want a night they want to watch Shyamalan, you know do his version of hitchcock you know that's their kind of thing because it feels it feels like more like high art for them you know mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are people that are going to, you know, will go see, like, It Chapter 1, but would never go see, say, Hereditary or The Witch. And you know what? That's totally okay. Like, Mm -hmm. not every movie 
has to be for every single person. Like there doesn't have to be some sort of like lit- litmus, litmus test or, you know, gatekeeping that says, unless you like these particular brands or styles of movies, you're not a true fan. Like it's okay to be a casual fan. That, uh, that, and I think a big reason, and this is just me speculating, but I think another big reason why maybe book of shadows didn't hit as much is the marketing for the first film was so good and innovative mm-hmm. and it, it kind of immersed you into this feeling that even like i said in the sanchez episode even though you know it's not real just that kind of like angle of the marketing makes you excited to act like it is whereas you come to book of shadows and how did they promote it they had a three-day online festival and the winner won tickets to see marilyn manson and a private screening of book uh book of shadows with marilyn manson that's so like fantastical that it's just, like the complete like antithesis of what made the original work and even what made the original marketing work and mm-hmm. the excitement. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's so like, I, you know, and it's, I, it's, it no, bugged the hell out of me that marketing too. That you know, it felt like you could tell the studio was trying to play it safe in that you know how they presented it, especially the teaser trailer, which I think is just you know. Uh, what is it like just an aerial shot of the black Hills? And then we get a couple mm-hmm. of shots of, uh, you know, the characters and, you know, I, re- I remember thinking, uh, watching, you know, both of the trailers that came out, you know, it, it feels like they're trying to ride that line. They're trying to say, Hey, you, you know, that movie that you loved last year, well, this is totally more of the same, but also, Hey, do you remember that movie you hated last year? Well, this is going to be completely different. Yeah. So please, everybody, come together. Come see the sequel that we rushed out in less than a fucking year. I was at Book of Shadows opening night when it came out. I remember, like, at the time I worked at, like, some retail home theater. Like, Circuit City was where I worked at the time. Like, um, and we had, like, a group of friends. We all worked together. And, like, we had a, you know, we'd go, like, get a bite to eat and then go to a movie, like, more Friday nights than not. Um and I was obviously, I love the first Blair Witch Project, even though I refused to go see it again in theaters because it scared me too much. Um, and I remember going to see Book of Shadows and it actually made me angry. And very few movies like do that to me. Um, <laughs> it made me angry because I felt like I was being insulted um, for watching it. I felt like I was being insulted by the filmmaker for actually enjoying the first movie. Um I think there was like a really derisive and just a snobby tone that well, Berlinger took to the movie. And then I felt like I was um, being insulted because it was just a very shoddily made movie that insulted my intelligence as a mm-hmm. human being. Did did either of you guys read uh, Melody Moss's review of the film when it first came out? No. No. Uh, I have it pulled up right here and I'll I have just quote, pulled up, but do I'll please, quote yeah. one I'll quote one sentence, actually two sentences that she wrote about Book of Shadows. Here it is. This film is so bad, no amount of high price marketing tools, glitzy trailers, live webcasts, uh, webcasts, star-studded soundtrack CDs can save it and the motivation behind this trek is all too clear, pure and simple greed. That sounds <laughs> like a very very well-written <laughs> version of worst movie ever it really does it's you know what i mean like like i I feel like all of us felt robbed by that all of us i mean i mean obviously not you know jinx and like the people that actually enjoyed it but i think all of us felt that like okay they're trying to do this crazy marketing like the first film but they're they're missing 
what made it so magical. And it feels right from the beginning, this feels like a cash grab, whereas the first film felt like filmmakers trying to tell a good story and it ended up being a success. So I love the first three minutes and 22 seconds of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that like, you know, like then it's all downhill. Like I actually really love the first, although I have one quibble and we'll kind of go over that in a minute. I love the idea. Like you open up with this footage, like media footage from like MTV news and Conan O'Brien, CNN, CNN talking all about like the phenomenon that was the Blair Witch Project and then you go to the actual town of Burkittsville, and Berlinger, what's really funny in his commentary, talks about how he tried to shoot in Berlinger more and was basically told, get the fuck out. Um, <laughs> he was like, we want absolutely no part of you and your highfalutin movie crew. Get out of here. But he in- interviews actual residents from Burkittsville, as well as himself. He makes a cameo appearance in it. Um talking about how the movie impacted this really little town, like this tiny, tiny little hamlet that no one would ever go to otherwise. And all of a sudden you have like hundreds or thousands of people descending on it. Um, Like that footage of the old woman who's like, I got rocks from my garden and sold them for $10. Don't sell men a rocks online because it's too much to sell a rock. (laughs) Like that was an actual person. That was fascinating. I'm like, I could easily... Whether or not you treated the Blair Witch Project as real or just a movie, but like it, it, it didn't have to be a, a documentary the whole way too, but an exploration of the Blair Witch phenomena and its effect on people would have been a fascinating movie that I would have loved to have seen. Yeah, can you but imagine what Berlinger would that... have done with that? But then you get this aerial shot of the woods. And Marilyn Manson, and again, like I said before, it's the Steve Buscemi, hello, fellow kids, mem. And I get he didn't want that song, and that was not his editorial choice. That was a studio mandate. Um, Yeah, but from that point on, I'm like, ugh. But okay, but how many times do all of us? Yes, I'm sorry. I want to give. I want to let Jinx in because I feel like go go for it. Go for it. This is this is like it does feel a little bit like we're you know. No, 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 no. no. I, but in that first two and a half minutes, don't you also, and I love that too, but don't you feel that that sets up that sort of, I mean, that, that's what tees up what you saw as being like the sort of derisive look at fans of the first movie. I mean, it's all right there in that first two and a half minutes, you know, when you have the sheriff yelling at essentially the, uh, the stand-ins for us, the audience, you know, the people who love that movie, you know, basically chasing them out of the cemetery in the woods, it feels like. You know, everything that the movie is going to be on a certain level is held in the kernel of that first two and a half minutes of the movie, I think. Mm-hmm. It's possible, but I think because you get so little of it there that you could have you could have gone in a million different directions. I think that derision comes later in the movie and the way the story kind of just plays out with your core cast of characters. Like that's what I found troubling. Yeah. And I and I definitely want to get into that with the characters and what they all mean. But I will I, I this is a weird aside, but can I ask, have either of you guys ever been to the real Burkittsville? Not yet. No, I haven't. I have you? Yes, I took a trip to Gettysburg once. Uh <laughs> being such a horror nerd, I wasn't actually there to visit Gettysburg as a site, although I did, and it was uh oh, that's a whole other story. But mm-hmm. um but yeah, I went to a horror convention there. I forget what it was called. I, I don't think it exists anymore, but uh 
as I was leaving, uh, you know, I, I knew that I had to cut through part of Maryland and I was like, you know, just for the hell of it, I wonder, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I pulled out the Garmin and checked it out and sure enough, I was 28 minutes away from Burkittsville and I was like, get the fuck out of here. So how do you not? Yeah, of course. How do, how do you not? And, um, I went and it is, it is such a small, small, unbelievably small town. Um, it's it's a one road sort of town. It's a it's a tiny little village, and yet there are four markers for the town. Like if you drive, <laughs> if you drive to the end of the town, you know, in a circle, like you see four different entrances with that Burkittsville sign. Not the one from the movie. They actually had to redesign it because apparently so many people would steal the mm-hmm. original sign because it was you know it looked like what was in the movie. But um, you know, I guess all of the hatred had long since left by the point that I got around to actually visiting the place. I think this was around 2009, 2010 that I went. And, um, but you know, I, I just walked around, I bumped into a couple of people. Weirdly enough, it was the same day that, uh, this person who lived literally a stone's throw outside of the town was opening up like, uh, an apple cider kind of stand out of their house. Uh, and it was delicious by the way. Um, (laughs) but, uh, there was this little old shop there on the corner that looked like it had been there for a couple of hundred years. In fact, I'm certain it had been, and but it looked like it had been perfectly preserved. And even the guy who ran the shop looked like he was from, uh, you know, the 19th century. It was amazing. And he was very polite. He was very cordial, you know, but he was much more interested in talking about Burkittsville as a town that had a significant, uh, historical role to play in, uh, you know, the civil war. And, uh, you know, anytime I tried to bring up the movie, like he knew that's why I was there. You know, he knew that's why I was wanting to chat about it. But, um, you know, he, he was, he was polite, but you could tell it's just, it's kind of an embarrassment to them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, watching the opening minutes of book of shadows, I mean, it seems like a pretty, yeah, pretty accurate, you know, slice of life as to what it must've been like in Burkittsville just right after the release of that movie. How long ago was that? That I went there? Yeah. Uh, it was like 2009, 2010. So it's been I about a decade. I think it's reversed at this point. Now they. Well, I wonder what actually, the Wingard film did. <laughs> there's a Blair Witch. Well, that was Vancouver. That's actually, oh. when we talk about the Wingard film, my actual biggest complaint about the movie is that the woods don't look or feel anything like the original movie. I know it's a nitpick, but. That's, that's your it, biggest complaint, though? It's my biggest complaint. Well, there's others. We'll see. You, <laughs> listeners, you're going to have to tune in in another week. Um, you know, I, yeah. Um, my biggest complaint is it didn't have the owl making sexy eyes at people, I guess. <laughs> um, so I think that the, maybe the, 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 I think, I think maybe distance between the movie coming out has made the town embrace it a bit more. Um, react, there's actually like a Blair Witch experience now. Like they have guided tours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're doing like a big, we're actually going to be interviewing the dude that kind of puts all of that together. Um, I'm, I think I was actually supposed to do it tonight and I forgot. Well, um, that cool a decade ago. Damn it. Yeah. So I, you know, I think we're going to, I'm going to road trip it out there next summer myself. Just, uh, have you ever, any of you guys ever been to Salem, Mass by any chance? I'm dying to go. I haven't. I live like yeah, a little bit further away now, but I used to go to Salem a lot. What's funny is like their um, historic attractions about witches have not changed since I used to go there in field trips in grade school like 35 years ago. So that's that kind so of awesome. charming. But there is a 
in the town square, there's a statue of uh, Samantha from the show Bewitched, um, which is like, it's kitschy and all, but like, it's kind of in really bad taste because like, you know, 19 people were executed unjustly. And then you have like this like do 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 cute statue, you know? Um, Same sort of thing. I don't know if it's, I don't know. But Salem is amazing and I love it. Okay. Yep. I lived about an hour away from Point Pleasant. Are you familiar with that place? No. Uh, when I was up north, it uh, it was the site of the Silver Bridge collapse, uh, and it's uh, <laughs> it's known as basically being the the site of the initial uh, sightings of the Mothman. Uh, so if you watch the Mothman prophecies, it is set in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, and I, it's the same thing. You know, there's this kitsch value to the entire town where you can go to the Mothman Museum, uh, where they have this rubber Mothman hanging from the ceiling, and they have, uh, you know, uh, news clippings from way back in the day when all of it happened. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of mythology of the character or not, but they have this big silver mothman statue in the town square and a stone's throw away they have a uh, a sort of marker that shows where the silver bridge collapsed now it's fun to go to the town and to go to the mothman festival there is actually a mothman festival good god and uh you know to visit the um the mothman museum see the mothman statue have mothman pancakes and a mothman frappuccino but Again, a stone's throw away, you have the site of an actual tragedy where mm-hmm. dozens and dozens and dozens of people lost their lives. And I don't know that it has the sort of weight that it should. And it sounds like the same thing with Salem. I, uh, I, I don't know. That's it, it's, it's strange. It's a bit, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it, there's this uneasy feeling anytime I go there where it's like, I know this is supposed to be fun, but also, you know, it's, uh, it's also a memorial site. Right. Right. So I think we've kind of gotten off the track here a little bit, as we're prone to do. I feel like I'm <laughs> avoiding talking about the movie at this point. Um, so, I, you know, I guess, I, you know, Jinx, you're the highest of the three on this movie overall. And I'm trying my best to give it a chance right now. I really okay. am. Um, you know, once we get into the meat of the movie, once we meet Jeff and Steven and Erica, Kim, um and Tristan, Tristine, um, what what attract? As you're watching this, like, what about this group did you find compelling or enjoyable, or just like I want to follow them on this journey? Ah, uh, that's a great question. You know, there is something about it. I, I, <laughs> and I, I gotta imagine a lot of detractors are going to laugh at me for this, and I completely understand it if you guys want to throw stones, but I, I. I like the characters. I like the actors. I like their chemistry. I think they're saddled with some really unfortunate dialogue at times. But I think for the most part, I think the chemistry really works. Uh, From the moment we meet them in the van the first time and, uh, you know, they're making that trip to pick up Kim in the cemetery, just kind of the banter that immediately sets up who these people are and what their point of view is. I was kind of in at that point. Mm -hmm. I I, I didn't mind taking that ride straight away. And, uh, you know, out of all of them, I think that uh, Jeffrey Donovan is probably the standout. I think he gives his character a lot of life and energy. Uh, really? You didn't care? If, well, okay. I get Keep, that. I'm but, sorry. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Shots I shouldn't have, done that. shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but no, no. So yeah, no, it's from the moment the movie begins, I, I enjoy those characters and I enjoy taking that trip. Now, I will say, you know, in addition to the, uh, the dialogue not always serving the performances, I will also say that unlike the original Blair Witch, which, you know, had three characters that I felt like were real people. Like, yeah. just very, very real, you know. Uh, 
I in this, I mean, all the characters feel like movie characters with capital M, capital C. Yes. You know, I mean, they feel like constructs, which they're kind of meant to be in a way, but it doesn't stop me from actually well, finding kind of engaging see, and taking that trip with them. The the problem is, and I'm I'm not even saying that as like just talking shit about the movie. I, I think when you have films that kind of not make fun of, I don't think it was Berlinger's intention to make fun of, but to set these kind of trope-like characters and these cliche characters that represent like basically the worst of every kind of fan. You know, the goth girl, the kind of mentally unstable, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I almost feel like it could be taken uh, almost as an insult, you know? Right. It, it, it feels like it feels like you're watching a satire that doesn't... A satire that doesn't come off satirical, but instead comes off like, like the opposite of a love letter to what came before it. Right. I but feel I don't... like Jeffrey Donovan... Mm-hmm. Imagine if Dude Where's My Car was a stage production on Off 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 Broadway, <laughs> he would have been like the third understudy to Ashton Kutcher. Like oh, that's on. his character in this movie. You he's, know that's unfortunate because because he's, he's gone on to have the best career of. Have you guys everyone. seen Villains? I have not. Oh, it, it's coming out pretty soon. Jeffrey Donovan, uh, him, Bill Skarsgård, Michael Monroe, like. That's that's him like going off. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in, in Book of Shadows, it just feels like there's something there. But like, I don't know if it was the film. I don't know if it was the script or what. But man, and, it's and it's a rushed production. So yeah, exactly. you don't have a lot of time to really inhibit these characters. And, you know, I think the thing with the first movie is, is you know, Josh, Heather and Mike weren't a themselves and b really had to live it out in real time and we got 87 minutes of basically 24 7 terror for them um for a week um and we got the best 87 minutes of that where this we just get like something that's really rushed i actually re-watching this movie really liked um kim director in this movie the goth girl i thought she was probably the standout for me in this movie I enjoyed watching her a bit more, not just because she's like stunningly beautiful in it, but just also like her performance was fun, even though it's cliched, even though again, like cliched goth, but she had, she's the, seemed to be the only one that had these moments that are like, look, just because I wear black clothes, I'm not a complete freak. Like she actually had more human moments overall. Although how she got these like kind of, mind reading powers and the ability to tell somebody was pregnant by looking at them for five seconds. I still don't understand. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah. I admit that freely. I do not like that aspect of the movie at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in Berlinger said the character of Erica was kind of like a olive branch of sorts to the Wiccan community who felt very offended by the Blair Witch Project, they were up in arms saying, like, this is not how witchcraft is portrayed. It's not evil. You know, it's a religion that celebrates nature. And all of those things are true. Um, however, Erica in this movie is the embodiment of every annoying cliche that anyone has ever had about Wiccans. This whole, like, oh, Mother Earth, may I please have a thank you very much? Like, nobody does this. And it's one of those things where, like, that kind of person makes me hate, quote-unquote, witches more than any 
folklore about witches. Like, it's so annoying. It's like, this is why people hate you. It's like, I respect vegans and respect veganism. I don't respect that vegan who runs around yelling blood mouth and, you know, like, um, ask, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, well, this is like, this is like such an, you're not Joe, you're not doing this community any favors no, with this totally. kind of character. Uh, I do practice, you know, it's very much like a huge part of my life. I don't talk mm. about it that much, but I'm very much into that. And mm. I'm more offended by the quote unquote accurate portrayal in book of shadows than the dramatized mm. nothing like reality, uh, right. of the first film. You know, like it's it's a movie. I could I could enjoy the craft without being offended. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> it's it's a movie. I think we lost Jinx. No, <laughs> no, I'm still here. No, home. I <laughs> no, I I will say out of the five, you know, uh, and I've you know none of this is revelatory. I mean, all the stuff that I'll mention here. I mean, Berlinger notes it all in this commentary. But yeah, each of the five characters are meant to stand in for uh, an idea, like an aspect of the type of. Uh, viewer or fan that the Blair Witch sort of had. You know, mm-hmm. you, had, you mentioned Kim, you know, she's goth, she's an outsider. She connected to the occult aspect of, you right. know, the first film. Uh, Erica obviously uh, represents Wiccans and witches. And, you know, I, yeah, it is a shame. I think she is the sort of worst drawn character of the group. Uh, I, I, like the actress i think she does her best uh i think she is kind of like charming uh at times at times i think some of her dialogue is just god awful Mm -hmm. uh but overall like i i kind of bought that character and i bought her as a stand-in trying to you know defend at least that aspect of or that sort of uh that idea you know that wiccans were you know offended by the portrayal in the movie um but I still... she was like, we're a persecuted minority is one of the lines this, that this poor woman is forced to deliver with a straight face. Like, we're a persecuted minority for 3,000 years. Burn a candle, you know. Ugh. You know, and maybe that's part of the rust, rushed aspect of the movie is that, you know, he knew that mm-hmm. character should be there, but he wasn't necessarily given the opportunity or time to flesh her out so that she was actually, you know, she did the job that he wanted her to do, you know. Whereas, you know... I mean, the flip side of that is, is, you know, Stephen and Tristan, even though I think they're more annoying in certain ways than Erica, mm-hmm. I think they're better drawn characters and they better sort of uh, exemplify the characters that, you know, uh, uh, Berlinger wanted them to be, which, you know, maybe it was easier for him because, you know, essentially, who are they? They're mm-hmm. intellectuals who debate the merits of the film's mythology. Yes. I imagine that was easier for him mm-hmm. to tap into, you know, but uh I don't know. I I, I can't. When, here's the thing. When, I can't even defend that some of these characters are not right. as well drawn as they should be. But again, you know, going back to it, you know, in your question that you asked me initially, mm-hmm. why why am I willing to to go along with these characters? Why 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 do they draw me in? And I think it really is just because of the mm-hmm. chemistry. Uh, whether it be you know whether that's all the writing, whether it's mm-hmm. simply the actors and you know their abilities, you know, sort of trying their best to uh, overcome the writing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I love that cast. I love that grouping of characters. And I, I, more than anything, that's what draws me in every time. I think what bothers me about it, and maybe it's just a personal thing, is you get a man who made the quintessential documentary about three young men who were unfairly crucified, basically, and put on death row because they were they were looked at because they were into horror films and, you know, paganism and stuff. 
they were looked at like they were Satanists and evil and murderers. You get the guy who made such an important documentary to make a movie, and he makes our lead characters the very thing that those innocent people in his documentary were accused of. Like, it, it feels to me, and I'm not trying to just cap like cap on, you know, the movie, uh, but it just feels like, really? Like, it's such a bad look for Berlinger for me. But I, I can I never can... get past that. Can I read you from Roger Ebert's review of the movie? Sure. This sure. is I highlighted this uh, before we did our show before, and this ties exactly into what Jerry just said here. So this is from Roger Ebert's review of the Book of Shadows back in 2000. Uh-huh. So the movie shows no special insight that made it necessary for Berlinger to direct it. It's a muddled, sometimes atmospheric effort that could have come from many filmmakers. At the same time, because of loaded characters and dialogue, BW2 supplies ammunition to those who think the Arkansas prisoners are guilty. I can imagine a preacher thundering from his pulpit. This Berlinger comes down here and makes a couple of propaganda films making us look bad. Then what does he do? makes a film glorifying black magic and witches yep. if the film had argued against the mindsets that essentially framed the west memphis three that would be one thing but it doesn't this is not one of joe berlinger's crowd proudest days wow and i think that's a yeah, exactly. real point like this uh, berlinger's thing was like it's not supernatural it's the people and what you're saying now is okay now you're saying that people that have mental illness turn out to be killers people that are into witchcraft turn out to be killers people that are gothic and wear all black turn out to be killers and you're right jerry it does stand to the antithesis of what he was he aimed for and succeeded with in the paradise lost trilogies well it's like it's almost like making a statement movie as a sequel to a movie that was entertainment you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like the blair witch project is entertainment it's terrifying entertainment the second movie is berlinger trying to take his documentary Mm -hmm. status and his success in making really great documentaries i mean he is one of my favorite documentarians around Mm -hmm. uh, which pains me to hate the book of shadows as much as i do and i never want to go into a movie hating it right oh no exactly exactly i can't stand not liking a movie it was one of the biggest disappointments recently when my wife and I went to see the newest uh, 47 Meters movie because I adore the first one. I walked into the new one so excited, and it was easily one of the five worst films I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like so bad that I didn't even have to say anything. My wife looked over and like, oh, no, do you want to go? Better you know, or worse than Jason Goes to Hell? It's worse. Wow. Easily. Easily. Uh, you know, I hate not liking a movie, and that's mm-hmm. that's actually one of my favorite things about doing this podcast. I can't stand the Scream films, but goddamn, it was so much fun hearing about mm-hmm. people that do. And mm-hmm. I enjoy hearing Jinx talk about what he thinks works about this film. So this is the point now, if Jinx wants to come back and join us. Um, Hi. He's still there. So still here. I- I guess what I would like to know, because we've just said a lot, yeah, and, and you know, and I, I guess, like, what is it? Like, where, what am I missing? And it's, it could be very okay, much so, that, like, there's something well, that I'm just missing here. To go to Jerry's point for a second, too, because I would like to talk about that. And if you guys don't mind, I am going to take the long way around here, because that Do is it. something that I've, I, I used to read Ebert every week. And that was one of the first things that I read after seeing Book of Shadows and being like, holy shit, he's right, right? Like, that's... Mm-hmm. That's really, really disturbing that a guy who would, you know, uh, make that documentary would then draw parallels to, you know, the the characters in his own movie, but ultimately make them guilty. So 
I've been thinking about that for the last 19 years. And every time I watch the movie, I try and I, I wrestle with that a bit. But, you know, I. Uh, OK, yeah, I will take a long way around here. Bear with me. One of the more interesting moments for me in the movie is um, uh, Tristan, Tristine, you know, I was uh, Tristan's uh, miscarriage. You know, it sets up the idea of there being blood in Jeff's van, which becomes a minor plot point in the investigation that wraps up the story. But it also makes us question straight away whether or not our heroes are at fault for what happens to them or what they experience. You know, we wonder, um, did Ellie Kedward somehow make Tristan Muscari? Or uh, did the fact that she was doing drugs and drinking herself silly out in the freezing cold forest perhaps contribute? You know, it's the same thing with murders. Um, was that the witch somehow who framed our heroes, you know, or did she possess them or did they just get really, really fucked up and do some really horrible shit under the suggestion of a mythology that they've pretty much carried into the woods with them. And that leads me to wonder what we're meant to make of the final unveiling of our remaining heroes as murderers, you know, merely considering the story, you know, the world that's been set up here, are we meant to consider that we're viewing, you know, uh, a truthful version of the story, you know, that ultimate revelation with the videos at the end, you know, did Jeff, Steven, you know, Kim, Tristan, Erica, did they really carry out those murders, which those videos depict? I mean, after all, you know, there's Jeff's line early on in the movie about, uh, Oh, what is it? You know, about how film, film lies, lies, but video doesn't video tells the truth. Video doesn't know how to lie, something like that. Well, the film, you know, the 35 millimeter film portrayed our heroes as the victims of the witch, but the video unveiled them as the true villains, or is this merely the work of the witch? You know, maybe the film is the truth and the video was manipulated by supernatural means. And it'd be cool to discuss that. And I want to, because it's fun, but what really concerns me is this, like the film winds up with three people being jailed for murders. We, the audience are pretty sure they didn't commit only for the ending to pretty much say, no, nah, they totally did it. You know, if anybody else had made the movie, I wouldn't have batted an eye. But the fact that it was made by Joe Berlinger, you know, uh, I mean, you know, who made Paradise Lost and Paradise Lost 2 and eventually Paradise Lost 3 long after this, you know, which depicts the West Memphis 3, you know, three young men who were in prison for murders that they didn't commit. You know, it, it is uncomfortable that he chose with his first narrative feature to tell this particular story with that particular ending. And yeah, I mean... <sighs> Even after reading that, even that and watching, well, I mean, you know, watching it made me wonder. Yeah, I mean, especially after Ebert's review, it made me wonder if Berlinger harbored any sort of doubts about his doc subjects' innocence. But I will say this: with subsequent viewings, them and uh, innocent people are endangered and die as a result. I honestly feel like they don't represent three. I think they represent the Arkansas people uh, and prosecution who were so very willing to let themselves get worked into a frenzy over the fact that their initial teenage sub, sub, yeah, subjects, suspects rather, the West Memphis Three, you know, wore black and listened to metal and read Stephen King, you know, that they weren't able to see past all of that to the truth, you know. Um, now, you know, the flip but side of that is... But even by that the, point, if you say that, like, they're not meant to represent the West Memphis Three, that's fine. Like, not those three particular individuals, but I think you can make an argument that the movie is saying, but people that do participate in reading Stephen King and, you exactly. know, witchcraft, and then you can say, but of course, like, they can be 
more susceptible. Not necessarily they're going to do it, but they can buy into a certain mindset and be susceptible to doing it. We never get, like you hear Jeff described as someone who's been a pain in the ass in the town since he was 10 years old, but you never see any behavior from him that we, you know, I guess, except for maybe, I guess, he's a, a crook with a really sweet bachelor pad. Um, you never see any behavior that would lead you to think, why Why is he seen as this sort of thorn in the town side at all? Like, what is it about, you know, his behavior that makes you think that? You're just meant to think, like, nope, he's mentally unstable, so therefore he's going to become, you know, this violent criminal, which is someone that is a mental health practitioner. Is like, that's a really dangerous mindset and a really irresponsible mindset to portray. I, I, but does that not depend on what you ultimately, where you ultimately come down uh, when it comes to like the supernatural aspect of the movie? So I'll ask you guys watching the movie, in the world of this movie, do you believe there is a Blair Witch or no? I believe that Berlinger wanted it to be human murders. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think once I read that from Berlinger, like it was like a cement box for me. I think you're meant to see them all as unreliable narrators. Yeah. As opposed to I think what I've watched in the it's about a hundred and forty minute movie, I believe. What I've seen in the hundred and thirty-five minutes before the quote unquote big reveal at the end, um, is meant to just be from the point of view of five unreliable narrators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can get that. I completely understand. I yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that that's meant to demonize any one of them. Because, I mean, ultimately, if you're going to take those five characters and have them represent different groups, you know, and they they are our heroes, right? But, I mean, we are going to put them in danger. And sometimes, you know, sometimes movies have really, really downbeat endings. I, I don't know that when I watch the movie, I... I don't know that I can buy that there's nothing supernatural afoot. You know, okay. I, I do I do see the movie as standing apart from the first movie. I think it stands mm-hmm. apart from its continuity in the same way that, say, New Nightmare stands apart from, you know, the Nightmare on Elm yeah. Street movies. Sure. Uh, you know, I don't consider it in continuity, and yet I still think there is something supernatural afoot. Now, Burlager can tell me I'm wrong all he wants to, but, you know, it's 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 my movie to watch and judge, too. Uh, and that's a good point, and I, and I understand that point. Like, just because the... You have to remove, you know, the authorial, the author, like again, sorry, cold medicine, the author, uh, the authors, oh, Jesus Christ. You guys know what I'm talking about, correct? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes. You have to remove the intent of the filmmaker out, out from your own understanding and reading of the movie. I just have a really hard time doing that in this case. And I think it's because I am bringing bias into how I'm reading it based on my first reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I completely understand it. There is something about the movie, though, to me that feels inevitable and mm-hmm. not because of who those people were, but simply by virtue of the fact that they came into contact with an evil that they can't quite understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, they are stand ins for different types of audience members, you know, throughout the story, certainly. But I think by the end. You know, I, 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 I find it hard to believe that Berlinger meant to demonize any of those people. And even if he even if he did mean to, uh, weirdly enough, and that would be a hell of a conversation to have with him. Uh, that's not the way I take it as a viewer. You know, I, I feel like it's just, you know, I, I think that's why the, the ending of the movie is 
you know, genuinely kind of horrifying. The fact that these people weren't in control of themselves, whether or not there was anything supernatural afoot or not. I, uh, it's chilling to me. Um, I mean, the, the, the final moment with Steven, you know, breaking down, you know, he is the guy who's been kind of like, you know, Mr. Logic all the way from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And even for all of the things that he goes through, he's the guy who's kind of stayed solid all the way through, you know, the, the, I wouldn't call him the rock of the group, but I mean, he, he's easily the least rattled until, you know, the final moments in the, uh, Oh, in the factory. But at the end to watch him out of all of them, just a jittery crying, screaming Mm -hmm. mess is, I don't know. It, it, it shakes me a little bit in a way that uh, I, I just I love Adam an ending like that. Mm-hmm. I guess like and I get what you're saying about Steven, him being the one who was like saying this is all hysteria. This is all collective madness right now. There's nothing supernatural here. You know, this is not what happened. Go ahead and play back the tape. You know, this is he makes so many bad decisions before that. And just from the fact that like what sort of PhD candidate or or academic writing this massive research project doesn't back up their work? Like they're freaking out because their book is in tatters. And I'm like, did you print out like a copy of it and then like smash the hard drive to bits? Like <laughs> what? And like who? And they're like, we have all these one of a kind historical documents. Like why would you take that shit camping with you? Like, what would be the point of needing that on this trip? Like, why are you bringing these, these artifacts with you? And it's just like, that's a bad decision. Tristine, who's, you know, pregnant is getting drunk and getting high with everybody. The, these, some of the choice, like, I think that's one of the things is like, it's not just, it's not just the, point of view of Berlinger, but the clunkiness to the story, like, they wake up, they get blackout drunk, absolutely like shattered drunk. Like we're gonna pull an all-nighter and get super fucked up and high. And then the next day they wake up, they're like, we can't remember what happened. It must be supernatural. It's like, nah, dude, you put away like a case of fucking Jack Daniels the night before <laughs> each. Like, I you know, like that's what alcohol does to you people when you drink that much of it. And what I find super funny is like the next night when they go on a quote unquote beer run. Kim buys like a six pack of beer for the beer run for six of them. I'm like, what the, this is just, this is bad. Like just little things like that just drive me absolutely up a fucking wall with this movie. Well, there's a lot of them. Yeah. No, there is. I mean, I, yeah, definitely. I, I would like to think that the characters would have been smart enough to realize that they needed to scale back their drinking to about a beer a night. But, uh, you know, part of me also wonders if Kim just bought it for herself. Um, <laughs> no, I'm being silly. But, no, I, I hear you on Steven. Uh, I don't know how much backstory is given, you know, I if it was maybe cast aside in a moment that I, I have never quite <laughs> grasped. But it felt like... Stephen and Tristan, like they were researching on the run or on the move, you know, like they mm-hmm. were picking up bits and pieces, you know, they, they were not from Maryland, but they found themselves there. And presumably all of their research material, you know, it didn't come from Boston, you know, it would have come from the surrounding areas. One mm-hmm. again, one assumes. So 
I, I wonder if the fact that they're taking it with them is because, you know, I mean, obviously they're on the road. They're not necessarily staying anywhere, but, you know, uh, this guy's van and eventually his place, you know, after the uh, the overnight in the woods didn't work out. But I wonder if we're meant to think that they simply acquired this stuff recently. They haven't had the chance to make up, you know, uh, make copies yet. I, I don't I, know. And I, I would have found it deadly dull if they had actually delved into that. <laughs> like, I didn't, I, I, it doesn't I, bug me in a way, but... I didn't get that impression only because like the glimpses you get of what they have, it's pretty well laid out by that point. Like you have something that approximates a finished product, something that he'd been doing for like quite a while. So I don't think it was something they like, you know, stopped over at the um, Perkinsville Historical Society, saw Bill Barnes and said, do you mind if we do you mind if we borrow the cult of the Blair Witch book for a week? We're going to go for a little hike in the woods. And he was like, oh, sure, youngsters, go ahead. You little Bill scamps. would have totally let them, though. He's oh, a good Bill, Bill Barnes, salt of the earth, total salt <laughs> of the earth, man. Um so I I didn't get that. And this struck me as something they had been working on because like their reaction to it. It wasn't like, you know, you have a short little research paper to do. You do like the opening paragraph or page or two and then forget to save it. This was like years mm-hmm. worth of work that had been gone up and like, you know, those are only our notes we've backed up. It's like you don't have like drafts of your it as an academic, as someone that is just but, cur- but, but, it's just it, it hurt. It it hurt. Uh... But uh, if the events of the movie take place, though, in November of 99, and this was all spurred on by the release of the Blair Witch Project, which they had to have seen in what, late August, September, Mm -hmm. then I don't think they would have been putting in that much research time. You're meant to believe it has. It's just, again, more laziness on the part of Artisan and Berlinger. You're meant to believe that this was a well-researched, near-the-finish line project that's what you're meant to believe now maybe the timeline doesn't line up and perhaps the scope of their project expanded well past the Blair Witch and explored like hysteria and phenomenon stretching back for decades and the Blair Witch was going to be part of what tied into that overall and maybe would have been the capstone part of their project cashing in on the kind of hysteria of the time and like the, the what it would have been but it wasn't something where they just had like it wasn't me doing my show notes, you know, where I have maybe five to six pages typed up. And if, you know, if I delete them accidentally, oh, well, um, this was something they had that would look near the finish line. It's, you're at least meant to believe that. I will mm-hmm. say this. I, I completely understand where you're coming from. If they had tried to work in that justification at any point in in dialogue or exposition in the film, mm-hmm. I would have pulled out my hair ages ago. Uh, watching a movie that would have felt the need to, to, you know, again, to justify, you know, uh, uh, something like that, something, uh, you know, that I think ultimately, you know, what, what is the point of them having that research with them, but to, you know, show that, you know, in their fucked up state, they could, you know, destroy mm-hmm. it, but also to give us like a really great, really beautiful set piece. I love the look of the, uh, you know, Pages the paper coming down. snowing sure. down on them makes no sense whatsoever, mm-hmm. but it is drop dead gorgeous. And I mean, you know, I, I, we hold certain movies to different standards and I get that. And if we hold book of shadows, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Blair, Witch two against say the, the bar set by the Blair, Witch project, which is a movie that felt incredibly real, then yes, I think it fails mm-hmm. on, on notes like that, but well, shouldn't we know, though? 
Well, like, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you're flips, wrong, but like, how do but how do the flip we side of that hold... is is like how how often do you watch Lucio Fulci's The Beyond and get really pissed off at Do Not Entry? You know, I mean, it, but you had you had 15, it's, it's a it's a direct sequel you, to the first movie yeah. though. You had 15 million dollars to make this movie versus something that costs less than most people's cars cost at this point to make. Not only that, you have this. <laughs> you, you're given a cliff notes of years of backstory and mythology to build off of. And you are going to have the arrogance to say, no, I'm going to throw all that aside. I'm going to absolutely piss on the legacy of this movie. Um, and this is what I'm going to come up with. And you have like zero attention to detail you have. And I know that Berlinger did not want, he says in his commentary, the title card that comes up that says these are reenactments of actual events that happened in the summer of 1999 or fall of 1999. Excuse me here. And then you have the mini documentary that starts the movie and two of the characters that are in the movie are in the mini documentary. So wait a minute, you're telling me that these are reenactments of events, but in your actual documentary part, here are the actors that are playing real characters. It's this laziness, and I think that's more an artisan at that point. No one is going by looking at the logic of the movie and saying, like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Like, we're saying that these are dramatic reenactments. Why do we have the actors in the documentary at that point? That well, doesn't I think make for any the... sense. That breaks the logic of the movie. And that's that's ridiculous. But what tells us that that documentary couldn't have been fucked with a bit? You know, I in those opening moments when I see Jeffrey Donovan playing Jeff Patterson, like I think at least within the world of the movie, the idea is, well, they don't have footage of that guy or maybe they're not able to use it. So why not use the star of your reenactments to pop in for that moment like you would see on any sort of reenactment television mm -hmm. show? You know, well, uh, I, I, I think it's the filmmakers expecting us as viewers to do that, to explain away their laziness that is right. offensive. You know what I mean? It's. I, I think that people like you, which I mean, bless your heart, it's awesome. People like you're, you, your kind. No, of no, no, no. Types. I totally don't mean it that way. I mean, I, I mean, like you know, like you're looking I, into personally. It, you're I took the bless it. your heart tougher than the the first snap. But, uh, <laughs> no, but what I mean is, is like, I feel like people like us who are very analytical about films, if even if they don't work, maybe put too much into them at times and try to explain away their flaws. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I, I do you well, know what I mean? And that all comes down, but I mean, that all comes down to how the movie ultimately hits us in the heart the first time around. If we, if we hate the movie, then we're going to rewatch it and find right. reasons to hate it. Or we're going to find the reasons that we feel justify our hate. Well, I didn't yeah. like it because of this and this and this and this, you know, it's the same thing, you know, because I love the movie. I can, uh, I can say, well, I love the movie because of this and this, and right. Oh, all of those things that you're knocking. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I recognize that those are flaws, but here's what they mean to me. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. I don't think the tiny details when it comes to stuff like that, because totally. you know, the, the movie as an entity, like as a, 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 you know, uh, a, a full product, like still works for me, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if this movie landed, I, you know what? I cannot disagree with that. If and this can I, movie, can I, can I say one thing? No, to, if this like, movie, like, yes, you can, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> no, of but when it comes to Berlinger too, I, I, I want to defend him for a second too, by saying that I don't think 
Okay, we're, we're all in agreement. Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2 is a terrible sequel. I think we can all at least agree on that. Uh, I certainly do. I don't think Berlinger is the villain here when it comes to this franchise. I think it's Artisan. I think it's them going to a guy who had no business making that movie. And if I recall correctly, I remember, I want to think it was like this uh, uh, Ain't It Cool News article from way back in the day, like an interview with him. Uh, right before the movie came out, where he noted that he actually turned the movie down yes. a couple of times. You are correct. You know, I mean, he pitched you know, some if, ideas. If, he's like, I would do this, this, or this with it. But when they offered them the movie, he's like, no, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And so, like, they kept pushing it at him. And finally, he was like, okay, fuck it. Here's what I got. Now, I hate the Transformers franchise. But if you offered me a sequel, I would I would probably make a Transformers movie. I mm-hmm. And it would probably... I, I, it would probably be the worst possible Transformers sequel that a fan could find themselves mm-hmm. in. Like I, you know, I, I can't knock Berlinger too much for the movie that we wound up getting, uh, mm-hmm. because yeah, or the, rather the sequel simply because like, I, I think he was the worst possible guy to do the sequel. Like mm-hmm. he was the worst possible guy to carry on that franchise. But uh-huh. what he gave us, I think is so interesting because mm-hmm. It ended a franchise because it was able to comment. I mean, how many other movies can can you think of in a franchise that so sort of mercilessly take you know the its predecessor to task? You know, I, I think Halloween it's six. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just fucking so a quick programming note here, folks. Jerry actually had to step off of the rest of the episode uh, just to deal with a little bit of family situation. So it's just going to be Jinx and us and myself for the rest of the episode. So in case you don't hear Jerry again, he hasn't been kidnapped. Jinx didn't kill him for disagreeing with him. It's just he had to go because sometimes we run a little bit long here. Anyway, back to our regular scheduled program. I, I will. I'll, I'm going to agree with your point here. If this movie landed for me, I could easily say, um, you know what, magical realism, and it all works for me in the service of good storytelling. Um, I actually yesterday, my daughter, who's nine, was watching um, Cinema Sins on It Chapter One, and you know she's seen It Chapter One and It Chapter Two because I'm a terrible parent that doesn't. You know, not only not only doesn't monitor what my child watches, but actively encourages her to watch these movies. Um, but and I, I went into the other room and I, went, and I said, Ada, like, look, I'm going to have you pause it. I'm not telling you not to watch this because it's not an inappropriate thing to watch. Like there are certain YouTube things where I'm like, nope, do not watch this. Absolutely not. Change it. Elm Street 3 is fine, but. You know, some kids animated thing. No, thank you. But I'm like, the reason I don't, I think you should maybe not watch it is because what these people do about movies is a thing that daddy, someone who loves movies and talks about movies and adores them, they do something I hate, which is nitpick movies to death. And they just cut things to shreds. And they're people that have no talent of their own. Um, and they're just like cutting things down. So maybe it's not the best way to learn about how to like critique an actual movie. But if you want to watch it, that's totally cool. Went back in the other room and she shut it off. She was like, all right, I'm going to watch this thing about squishy videos instead. So, you know, I and I'm doing that with this movie because it's just like I just had such a negative adverse reaction to it. And that's fair. And I think, you know, I... 
I have been merciless with certain movies over the years that I I just I can't connect to. And so, you know, when that happens, I want to find the reason, mm-hmm. right? You know, I I need to know why the movie didn't work for me because I am rooting for every single film that I watch when mm-hmm. I press play or sit down in a movie theater. I I'm on the movie side. It has to work pretty damn hard, I feel, to uh to lose me. And uh when that happens, you know, when I can't connect, then I need to justify that to myself. Now, equally you know, I watch a movie like Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, and, you know, a movie which is almost universally reviled, and I have to wonder why it does work for me. And ultimately, I don't think, you know, I could sit here and I could rehash everything that Berlinger talks about in his documentary. I can talk about the five characters representing, you know, the five different groups. I can talk about, you know, what is that phrase that he uses in the, uh, I don't know if you've listened to the commentary, but he talks I about... Have. Okay, so, you know, that phrase he talks about, you know, the dangers of blurring, you know, uh, mm-hmm. fantasy and reality or, mm-hmm. you know, fiction and reality. I forget exactly what the line is, uh, which is crazy because he says it 87 times in the commentary. Right. Um, you know, ultimately, all of that stuff doesn't matter, I don't think. There's something about the movie, like some X Factor, that just clicks with me. I, I love the atmosphere. I love the dread. I love how the characters interact, all while understanding that some people find this completely free of atmosphere and dread and they do not like the characters and how they click. And so I think as much as I would like to be able to defend this movie to all of the listeners out there wondering what the hell I'm thinking, as much as I would like to, you know, roll out the scroll and be like, here is why book of shadows is actually a great movie. You know, I, if you don't like it, if you've given it a chance, if you've spent the last two decades hating it and occasionally giving it, you know, another shot over the years and you still hate it, I'm not the guy who's going to be able to convince you otherwise, because I think ultimately why the movie works for me is something that I can't really describe. It's, it's some way that I connect to the movie and I, I hate to admit it because it makes me seem, you know, perhaps, uh, uh, a bit dumb even, but, um, you know, I don't completely know why the movie hits me the way it does, but I love it. And See, every time I, I, I watch it, it hits me the same way. But I don't think people are ever dumb for liking what they like. I mean, if you like it, as long as it's something that's, you know, not going to harm other people. Like if you're like, I'm into, you know, taking a riding lawnmower and running over children with it. Well, maybe you want to curb that as a habit. Um, okay. But so like, your ivory tower and judge me yes, again. I know. Oh. Sorry. I know. I'm such a prick. Um, <laughs> What I am, and I felt like as a viewer, like I said, I was being insulted. And it wasn't just the fact that, like, the campfire scene, I think there were some fun moments in it. But I think I remember the moment where they're like, I don't understand how these three in the woods didn't have sex with one another. You know, like, it's a great stress reliever. And Jeff is like, well, I'm stressed right now. Part of, we talked about this on our Blair Witch show part of what I really love is that these characters go into the woods and there's no sexual tension between them. Nobody wants to fuck one another. And part of it is the reason for that is when, if you've listened to our, when you listen to our interview with Eduardo Sanchez, he talks about how Mike and Josh really could not get along with Heather in the early going. Um, And I don't want to reveal many spoilers for the interview, but I think at one point they actually, approach Eduardo and, and Dan and said, look, as characters, if someone was acting like this, we would bail. Like we're like, we're out of here. Peace out. And we just get up in the middle of the night and leave. Um, so I'd love that there's no sexual tension in that movie. And I think that's kind of like turned on its head here and kind of 
questioned, I guess, in a way that makes you feel like, oh, I guess why didn't I think of that before as a viewer? And I think I'm doing a pretty poor job of explaining that right now, but I think where the movie really goes wrong for me is when they leave the woods. Once they're out of the woods, the remaining hour in the movie takes place in this dude's warehouse, and it's a boring place to be for an hour. And not only that, there's no reason for them all to be there still. You got blackout drunk, you don't remember what happened, Stephen and Christine just lost their baby. Why are they going to this stranger's warehouse? And uh, hours after they, again, lost their baby, the night after she got blackout drunk and high and miscarried because she got blackout drunk and high. Like, there's just so many irresponsible decisions that are made that lead them to the warehouse that as a viewer, I'm like, if I don't have any investment in these characters and don't care what happens to them, why am I spending another hour here in a really boring location where very little happens? I hear you. I, I, the way I always took it, the way they wind up in that factory is simply the fact that, I mean, obviously some amount of trauma happened to them all beyond the, the, uh, the, the, the miscarriage even, you know, and whether we want to believe that that's the fact that they, they went out in the woods and slaughtered a bunch of backpackers mm-hmm. or simply, you know, they were under the influence of the witch, but they woke up knowing that something was wrong. And so even though they're all strangers, I like the idea that they feel the need to cling to one another in mm-hmm. a way. And now do I, do I, would I buy that? they would go to that factory, you know, Jeff's place for a bit. I do. And for that very reason, do I buy that they would just stay there indefinitely? No, not at all. But I think the mystery ultimately starts to present itself, you know, bit by bit. And that's kind of what Mm -hmm. keeps them there. I don't think any of them planned on staying there, you know, uh, for the long haul, but at least until they could suss out exactly what had happened to them. So I, that never bugged me, not even a little bit. Um, Mm As far as the location, yeah. I mean, I get it. That's a location we've seen how many times, you know, in movies mm-hmm. in a way. Um, but um, I don't know. It, it's I, I like the idea that it was kind of like an industrial setting, but it was still – it felt like the forest had already started to take it over mm-hmm. again, you know? And I, mm-hmm. I, I like that. There's that sort of – there's that amazing shot. Who's the uh, – actually – made a point of writing her name down. Was it Nancy Schreiber who uh, DP'd the film? And there's that gorgeous time-lapse shot on the outside of the uh, the factory, you know, Jeff's home, when the light is sort of spilling through the trees. And mm-hmm. it's just so sinister in a way. And I love it for that. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sorry, what was the question? Uh, no, we got it. <laughs> yep. You hit at a point earlier that I, I would like to go back and have you address with more detail. You actually Please. said... The villain of this isn't Joe Berlinger, it's Artisan. And I agree, by and large, if you're if you're slicing up the blame pie, you gotta give the bulk of that pie to Artisan overall yeah. for the decisions they made. And for not only the decisions they made that led up to the movie and rushing it out, but how much they ham they they I have a real problem with the studio that basically goes after a creator and says we really want you to do this project. We really respect your vision. We really think you're going to bring something new and different to the table. And then butchers that vision and doesn't trust the, the creator and the director to bring his or her vision to life. And, do you and feel like that interferes. Bullshit in a way to that. 
I honestly feel like the only reason they pursued a documentary filmmaker in the first place is because they thought that was the best possible chance they had at somebody running and gunning a sequel for them and getting it done in the space of a year. I don't think they gave a shit about him as an artist. I don't think they gave a damn about him as a storyteller. I really don't. I, Especially given how they treated him, you know, after he mm-hmm. turned in his director's cut. Yeah. I don't know. Um, because I, his his documentaries had been so critically acclaimed. The fact that they wanted him to keep... I think you could have gotten a young buck and a young up-and-coming director or a young indie hotshot that is crank, able to crank out a movie rapid-fire very quickly and you could have done that and just stood over their shoulder and basically said you're directing this in name only um i think they could have done that very very easily and i think that there was at least at some level high up there was somebody that said this is the right person because of his documentary background even though we're not making a documentary again or a documentary type of movie again and again i argued earlier that the blair witch project is not a documentary it is mostly a bunch of random footage spliced together which is what it's meant to be it's not a documentary um or meant to be seen as that but tell me what you you know because you you've kind of gone to the mat for what you think the berlinger cut would have been what would have ultimately what do you think that would have added to what we see with book of shadows like how would that have been different and what do you think the ultimate intent would have been oh i don't i don't that's the thing i i don't know that i i'm I'm willing to go to the mat for the Berlinger cut. I think it's interesting, uh, the idea, uh, especially listening to him talk about it and what he wanted, uh, you know, beyond the fact that I think, you know, every director should be able to, uh, you know, to give us their own vision, even though it may not, you know, reach the masses on opening weekend, you know, at least give us that on DVD down the line mm-hmm. so that it can be preserved. Um, you know, and like I was mentioning earlier in the previous chat, you know, I a lot of his changes are... You know, things that I don't know would completely work for me. But I think if we were to get his cut of the movie, it feels like it would be even less of a horror film. It would mm-hmm. be it would be kind of a soft thriller at best, you know. I mean, without the those jarring cuts of gore and the murders, uh, with all of the interrogation stuff, not interspersed throughout the main narrative, but just being one big eight-minute chunk at the very end. You know, I I don't know that I would like it as much. And Mm -hmm. I hate to say that because I really want to see it. I want to see what that guy intended, but every choice that he says he would have made with his cut, I I kind of, I look at it and I'm like, well, maybe, but I don't know. And I can't say for certain that it would work. Um, All I know is that what we have, I, I like now, can I turn the question around and ask you like, with the movie that you dislike, the 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 way that it exists right now, you've listened to the audio commentary, so you know mm-hmm. too what Berlinger intended. Do you think you would like his cut more than what we have right now? You know, it's hard to say. I think that I would, because ultimately the Blair Witch Project, why that worked for me, it's more about what I don't see. That to me was far scarier. And one of the things I argue for in our show about the Blair Witch Project is how it turns around the point of view. Um, Usually when you've seen movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th, you're in the killer's point of view. This time I'm in the victim's point of view. I can only see what what they are seeing. And my mind is filling in the blanks at that point. And I find that far scarier than any monster or boogeyman you're going to put up on screen. 
Artisan gives me these quick, gory bits throughout the movie that take me out of what I'm watching and are distracting. And those would not have been in there. Um, the interrogation scenes just seem haphazard and randomly thrown in. And part of it, too, is the character of Sheriff Cravens is so over the top. And that was <laughs> by intent on Berlinger's behalf, a part. Yeah, it was essentially Mark Myers, right? Exactly. It was, it was based on the over-the-top um, foil, I guess the character I would call a foil, who was adamant these kids were guilty in um, Paradise Lost parts one and two, who, if you haven't, if you see part three, he then goes completely arc. over to the other side. <laughs> but he's still just as much of a freak and annoying. Uh, he just, now he's on our team. So um, it's like Bernie bros. Like, technically, they're Democrats, but they're still annoying as fuck. Oh, God, um, yeah. <laughs> that's a fair point so i, I um, although if i could say something for two seconds i will say that the scene in uh the third film third paradise lost i'm forgetting the uh mm -hmm. the subtitle to it but the moment when uh damien eccles and buyers meet for the first time e even though buyers is still way way out in left field mm -hmm. there and even though like all the shit that he talked about these guys to begin with there was something kind of touching sure. about they're meeting in real life and, you mm -hmm. know, the two of them able to forgive one another, you know, uh, not mm -hmm. for, I mean, obviously not for the murder or anything, which obviously Eccles did not commit, but just the sort of like blind hatred each of them had for a while and the things right. that they said about one another, you know, uh, buyers blamed him of, you know, murder and Eccles blamed him right back, you know, mm -hmm. and the fact that they were able to come together at the end, I, I, I don't know. I, I, that right. really hit me pretty hard in the third, Ooh. third movie. Um, Anyway, sorry, I am. Uh, no, no, that's I, okay. I tend to do this on my own podcast. I uh, I digress a hell of a lot. So, <laughs> well, I can't wait to guest. Um, so please. No, um, I'm trying to remember where I was going there. So I don't know. I think I would have gotten a more subdued movie, and I think that would have been fine. I don't need over. The, I think the biggest problem I have with this movie is it's like someone at Artisan took notes that we need more blood, we need more gore, we need more quick cuts, we need. You know, more and more and more. We need it to look like every other horror movie that was coming out in the late 90s, early 2000s. And to that, I would say, did you watch the movie you're making a sequel of? You know, <laughs> did you do you understand what worked about that movie? Um, and to me, maybe it is too much of a course correction for some of the backlash of the Blair Witch Project. Okay. You know, like, yes, you went to see an unconventional movie and we made a ton of money on it, but you're complaining that it was too unconventional for your taste. We're going to go, you know, go way far in the other direction at this point and give you something completely in generic. Like, you like scary ghost kids? We'll give you a couple schemes with scary ghost kids. <laughs> you, you know, you guys like that new metal rock and roll music? We'll give you Marilyn Manson. You know, you guys like blood and gore? We'll give you, like, an over-the-top bloody and gory sequence, you know? You get all you, you guys like titties? We'll give you some titties, you know? Which is, like, it's all over the place. Um, and, I, and I will say, you saying that, too, it reminds me, uh, I wanted to mention this, too. And watching the film again, I... I realized the movie never really terrified me at any point. It's sure. never it, you know, the ending I think is horrifying in its own right, but for a mm -hmm. completely different reason, it didn't chill me or frighten me or keep me awake at night mm -hmm. the way the first movie did. But 
you know, for all that, I'm not a blood and gore kind of guy. I'm fine with right. it, but I don't need that. You know, those aren't the, that's not the reason that I need those inserts in there. It's, uh, you know, it's the same thing. The ghost kids are so poorly realized. None of those moments are scary. None right. of them work. It's like, you know? I think so, I put it in my notes here. It's like newsboys, the ghost movie, you know, just yeah. like, it's, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, I will say you just said like the ending of the movie is really chilling and that I'll agree with like that. I will say no matter what your reading of the movie is, if you think that it's supernatural, then you can say, oh, my God, like these people were manipulated by this supernatural force and they really do have no recollection of what they did. Um, that's a really scary thing. And when you go back and look at the videotape and like how it contradicts everything. So I can I can say like no matter how you read the movie, that ending can be a bit chilling either way. But the movie as a whole, I would say, is not terribly scary. But it made me no. think, you know, this last rewatch about how – you know, I don't always need horror movies to horrify me. I don't need to always mm -hmm. be scared. That's not the main reason I go to see them. You know, most of the time I just, I just like watching really, really dark mm -hmm. dramas, you know? Sure. Uh, now if they can scare the hell out of me, all's the better, but, uh, you know, sort of leveling the, the charge against book of shadows that, that it's not terribly scary. Like that's not a huge knock for me. Um, but, uh, but I completely understand if some people, you know, are like, what are you fucking crazy? Like mm -hmm. why, why follow up an incredibly scary movie with a movie that isn't really scary at all? I get right. that, but it's not, you know, I didn't need that out of it. Right. Well, I think I've said everything I can say about this movie. We've done about two and a half hours on it. We uh, have not. Uh, between the two recordings, we're closing in on about two and a half hours at this point. It doesn't feel like it, I know. Um, so I think it'll probably be like two hours and all is said and done. Um, but that's, you know, I think I've said everything I can say. Um, I, this is a movie that every few years I will put in and be like, maybe this will be the time I appreciate it more. And I will say like rewatching it again for the show, um, as hard as I am in on it, I, there are some things I can't appreciate. And I think what I – not in the movie that I can appreciate more studios, like don't rush movies out and don't fuck with the artist. Let them do their thing. It maybe still would not have been my cup of tea overall, but I think I would have gotten something better. Um, I do – to your point, I think the most fascinating thing is how this movie literally killed the franchise dead between 2000 and 2016. Just absolutely like – Oh, it old yellered the Blair Witch Project. You could not <laughs> do anything with this aside from like CD-ROM games to your, you know, Windows 95 computer for years is the most you would get from the Blair Witch Project series. It's amazing how something went from being such a phenomenon oh, and to this, you know, to like being kind of out of the eye. And not only like... It was out of the cultural eye. Like people didn't even think about this movie for years, it seems. And now it seems like it has gotten its just due. And it has been kind of recognized as, as for the groundbreaking film that the original was. But it just seemed like for years, like people just kind of, oh, yeah, that's the one where the girl looks in the camera and boogers come out of her nose and nothing happens. Uh, like that's what people remembered and, you know, unfairly. So. I agree. I, uh, if I can give one last defense of the movie, of course uh, you can. 
to everyone out there. Um, if you only saw it the one time ages ago, uh, maybe give it another shot. You know, if uh, if you do revisit it every once in a while uh, during a franchise rewatch mm-hmm. and you find that you hate it every time, yeah, I can't imagine you're ever going to be one back. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I watching it again, it sort of cemented my. Uh, I don't know, weird, unexplained love for the movie. I love that it's a great extension of Berlinger's documentary work. I think it's beautifully made. It features some really impressive set pieces. I I love the documentary, like, asylum opening. Uh, I love the paper-snowing sequence. Uh, I even think Jeff finding Erica's body is, you know... uh, you know, fairly clever in the way that it's set up. I, I like the finale. I like the characters. I like the actors. I like, you know, the, the sort of tightening dread that squeezes throughout. And I, I love that Berlinger somehow managed to use a franchise installment to try and tear down the legacy of its predecessor because he must've felt in some way morally obligated Mm -hmm. to like, even though that's so, that was so wrong of artisan to have chosen him for this Mm -hmm. project. I love that. I, I think it's incredibly ballsy that he did that. But even that, I mean, I, I love the atmosphere. I mm-hmm. love the sequences in the forest. I love the factory home. I love Nancy Schreiber's photography. I love um, uh, Carter Burwell's score. I think is actually really fantastic. Um, do I think the movie is perfect? No. You know, a few films are, but uh, I would even say, you know, in all fairness, that the movie misses more than it hits overall. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, what works about it really works. I think it's a smart companion piece to Berlinger's work. I think it's a clever if blunt commentary on the original movie's promotion and success and mostly for me i think it's just a fun ride with a set of characters that i enjoy spending time with. Mm-hmm. so to me it still is a failure as a movie but it's an interesting failure and i'll take that over some other movies that we're going to eventually cover here on the show because i do think that as much as i don't like the movie i do like talking about it uh, I do enjoy the conversation. It's something that I can't just dismiss out of hand. Like, we just got done covering the Friday the 13th series, and, like, I have no need to ever watch Jason Takes Manhattan ever again. <laughs> and to be qu- it was a hard show to get through because there's just not a lot of interesting things to say about that movie. Um, and that was a hard show to do. And I think we succeeded in, you know, having a fun conversation. But, man, it took a lot of work. Um, this was as much as, you know, we kind of butted heads over how we see this movie. It was a interesting and fascinating discussion that I can look back on and go, you know what? Yeah, I can understand why someone appreciates the movie. It's not to me like, I don't understand how anyone likes Mandy. You're all terrible people. Um, I, I hate that movie so much. Um, and fucking Nick Chainsaw. Cage, man. Fucking Nick Cage, man. <laughs> oh, I remember when Nick Cage could really act. Uh, he is responsible for one of my favorite performances in all of cinema. Uh, I, the Wickerman remake? Oh, no, sir. No, no, no. Uh, leaving Las Vegas. You know what's funny, yes. though? I mean, two, two of my favorite performances of all time in anything would be Cage in Leaving Las Vegas and uh, Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream. And they were both in the Wicker Man remake. And before it came out, I was like, my God, look at that cast. Neil LeBute mm-hmm. is writing and directing? Oh, my God. I was, I was, I could not wait to see that movie. Sadly, I saw that movie. Yeah. Oh, no. Disappointed doesn't cover it, sir. I worked at a theater, watched it after hours. Yeah. I invited a friend along and he... I think was borderline terrified of me by the end of my 30 minute <laughs> post movie ranting about how much I hated that fucking movie. I tapped out on Neil the after in the company of men. 
Really? I I saw that in theaters, and it was so cruel. It is. Oh, that movie is such a cruel. I'm like, nope, don't need to see any more of this dude. So, yeah, that's where I, I stand. I do think that uh, your friends and neighbors and Nurse Betty are worth a look. Okay. Um, Maybe. If you get a chance. But, uh, okay. yeah, that, that first one is, uh, oof. Yeah, that movie hurt to watch. That end is just, like, unnecessarily cruel. Um, all right, so, Jinx, we're, we're going to wrap up here. So tell our listeners where they can find you. Like, if we, you know, tell us about Scream Addicts um, and your writing. You know what? I'm going to start that over. Give me one second here. Sorry, sure. dude. I am like, no, you're good at this point. Um, so, Jinx, we're going to wrap up here for that. But tell tell our listeners like where they can hear you, where they can find you. Um, yeah, let's go from okay, there. Okay, so I uh, I write for Bloody Disgusting from time to time. I occasionally do a column called uh, Second Chances, where I give <laughs> I give a movie that I didn't love initially a second chance and mm-hmm. uh, rewatch it with an open mind and open heart and see uh, see where it lands. And sometimes. Uh, Sometimes it gives me an I still know what you did last summer where uh, I, I ultimately find that the movie's kind of fun and silly, uh, whereas, you know, previously I'd hated it. Uh, but then mm-hmm. sometimes it brings me a, uh, a Wicker Man remake, which I uh, never, never again. I will never watch that film again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I occasionally write uh, about comics for the site. I occasionally write about uh, movies that are kind of hidden gems. Beyond that, I have a podcast called Scream Addicts. Um, Conceit of the podcast is essentially, you know, I invite on creatives in horror, be they writers, directors, producers, actors, musicians, uh, fellow podcasters. Uh, you're welcome on. Uh, and take you instead up on that. Absolutely. Uh, but instead of uh, chatting about their own stuff, uh, they choose a single horror movie uh, that they love to talk about. And, you know, we basically uh, rap about it for about an hour. So um, other than that, you can just find me on Twitter. I am at Jinx1981. That's J-I-N-X-1981. And uh, please say hello and tell me uh, to your heart's content how much I'm wrong about Blair Witch 2. But do so in a kind and supportive way, folks. I'm no used to getting beaten up over it. It's completely no cool. <laughs> so again, thanks for joining us tonight, Jinx. Thanks for, again, I think you knew coming in, like how Jerry and I felt about this movie. So yeah. you are a very brave man for coming in. And I hope we kind of took it easy overall. Um, to our listeners, we will be back next week, finishing our coverage of the Blair Witch series with 2016's The Blair Witch. You know, really quick, because you kind of made a comment earlier, like, you like that one, though? Like, what was your thought on uh, the Wingard uh, Barrett movie, really quick? Uh, I, quickly, I, I, I think it is uh, not at all a bad movie. Uh, I think it's perfectly entertaining. I think the biggest problem I have with that movie is that my expectations for it were so astronomically high. You know, I had mm-hmm. read some reviews for it that basically positioned it as being uh this generation's the exorcist and between that and you know my uh my sort of dormant fandom you know getting kicked into high gear you know i went back and reread all the spinoff novels and uh the secret confession of rustin parr the blair witch mm-hmm. dossier i rewatched all of the movies and all the little mini docs the ben rock stuff uh so that by the time i went to the premiere of that movie i was just amped to see this mm-hmm. film and uh you know by the time i got to the end of it i was just kind of like <laughs> you know it was it was fun it was good. Yeah. You know, it was well made. It was um, it was fun enough. You know, yeah. I remember going to a critic screening of it, and I am not part of the um, Boston Online Film Critic Association, um, but I ended up going or like sitting around a bunch of them, and one of them he kind of was writing for us at the time when I was actually doing a, a site, 
And I remember like walking out of the movie thinking, eh, you know, it was okay, I guess. And they were ripping the movie to shreds outside and they were so arrogant about it. That uh, I'm like, I see every, that. everything they were saying, I'm like, yeah, but I'm like, yeah, I think I like this movie a lot more because of their critique <laughs> of the movie. So, uh, but I'm looking forward to kind of talking about that next week to our listeners. We will uh, be back again. I am going to bed because I am super, super, super tired. My job requires me to basically hear the dramatic intrigue of seventh and eighth grade girls all day as a, a school counselor. Like I basically am the person people come to when they're having a bad day and it's all girl drama all day. Oh my God. Did you go away? No, I'm still here. Oh, I'm just, uh, just processing I'm, uh, that thought. Yeah, I'm weighing yeah. that right now. Yeah, just being like, like, you know what? I, I work at a car dealership. I think I win here. Um, <laughs> I love it. But it's like, who likes who? Who's talking shit about who? Who has beef with who? Like, in, in about a week, I think girls are going to come in and like, braid my beard and like tell me weird shit. So, oh. all right, I got nothing now. Thanks, thanks for coming on with us tonight, man. I hey, thank you so much. It was a blast, and I, I very much appreciated the opportunity to defend the movie that doesn't often get defended. I'll edit that part out because I, I just oh. um, so <laughs> recently, like people were. Um, up in arms because there's going to be a remake of Con Air, and it's like, how can you remake Perfection? And I'm like, really? Like that's, it's yes. a fun '90s action movie, but let's not, you know, let's not have this group hysteria that Con Air is some sort of cinematic masterpiece that's above. If you can remake Halloween, you can remake Con Air. People, let's not be stupid. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I want to ask the question: Why remake Con Air, and not because I think it's untouchable, like some mm-hmm. grand masterpiece that shouldn't be remade? But why bother? Why? What? What was it about Con Air that needs needs a remake? What is it about Con Air that will appeal to people today? I just, I really. Yeah, there's money to I be thought, made. They're remaking I think Face should... Off too. Now that I pisses me off, but yeah. you know, the you original should... will stay where it is. No, wait so. a minute. This whole talk about Con Air? No, it's Face Off that I was talking about. Holy shit. <laughs> I got my Nick Cage movies mixed up. Jesus Christ. I am so <laughs> fucked up. On... This is going to be edited out and put at the end no. of the episode now as like a little... You have to listen to the post-credits to actually hear this. Uh, it's Face Off. Face Off is no cinematic match. It's a fun movie. I like it. Um, but it's, Basically. you know, if you can remake... Again, Halloween, you can remake Face Off. It's okay.